0: Hello and welcome to the John 315 podcast, the show where we break open the mysteries of the most popular and misunderstood Bible verses and put them back into context. I am your host. They call me Jonathan pretends to know what he's talking about Van Shank, And uh, here is my co-host. They call him Jeremy actually knows what he's talking about Swingle. So Jeremy, why do they call you actually knows what he's talking about Swingle?
1: Yeah, uh, so we switch back and forth typically when we prepare these episodes, and I'm the one who prepared today's episode, and this is probably the most time, at least the most time I've spent preparing an episode, and you'll see why in a minute, <laughs> Um and I'll just let that speak for itself. Uh, but I think you need to explain yourself now, John.
0: Yes, and uh, usually we, the person who's not prepping the episode does the courtesy of re- at least reading the outline before we turn cameras on. And uh, I have not read any of it yet. <laughs> So, uh, but as I was telling Jeremy before we turned the cameras on, um, I did get a PhD. So I'm pretty good at sounding like I know what I'm talking about, even when I really ha- nope, have no idea. <laughs> so uh, we'll, we'll just and have to roll. Your PhD the...
1: is not in the Bible and your bachelor's is also not in the Bible. In fact, all of your education in the Bible is informal if i'm not mistaken that is that is correct
0: i am entirely <laughs> self-taught uh you know insofar as listening to lots of podcasts and reading books is uh, self-taught
1: well fair enough you do a good enough job on this podcast if i don't say so myself um, well thank you thank you jeremy but uh that might explain if i do a heftier share of the talking today um I am, after all, the one who actually knows what he's talking about. So
0: <laughs> It's true. And uh, I'll try not to jump in too much because I believe your instructions to me were, don't banter too much or this is going to take forever. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yes. Yes, indeed. Um, and that is because we're going to go through a whole 55 verse chapter of Leviticus today. <laughs> so that's like, you know, just adding insult to injury, I suppose. Um but uh, that being said, before we before we delve into this huge topic of uh, the Jubilee year, um, I want to do a quick plug for our YouTube channel, the John 315 Podcast. We'll make sure to uh, link it again in the show notes. Um, now, and I understand this because I myself listen to podcasts. I don't typically watch them. But uh, most of our audience is still uh, hanging out on Spotify. That's fine by me. But if you want to come see our lovely faces... Um, you know, we have a YouTube channel. Just want to make sure that's put out there for all you to, to know about. Um,
0: yeah. And and one of these days we might start adding visuals or something to the screen. So who knows? You may in the future be missing out on video content.
1: Yeah, if we start doing, like, uh, geographical, like, Paul's missionary journeys or something, we might have to... There we go. <laughs> might have to add some visuals on there. Uh, <laughs> right. But as you as you
0: alluded to, Jeremy, we are kind of in the... Uh, we're going to be talking about the year of Jubilee, or, uh, you know, the discussion of the Jubilee in the book of Leviticus today. Um, and this kind of fits in a little bit um, for people who may be joining us. Uh, you know, this is your first episode, if so, welcome. Uh uh, we are in the middle of a series talking about theology and politics, um, and uh, specifically kind of trying to look at how, you know, what does the Bible actually tell us about um, politics and political issues, um, and, uh, you, you know, sort of what kind of wisdom can we glean, and what kind of posture should we take toward political life as Christians who want to have our lives formed by what the Bible says. Um, maybe that, maybe that's, I think that's probably a good way of uh, of summarizing it there. And so we've you know done some uh, previous episodes on uh things like uh you know an eye for an eye you know that, that famous passage in um, exodus uh, we've done um, uh, studies on taxation and praying for leaders, and we tackled romans thirteen the Uh, uh, and so if any of those new listeners sound interesting to you and you want to see what, what do these guys really have to say about Romans 13? How should I think about it? You can go back and check those episodes out, um, either here in this podcast feed or like Jeremy was saying on our YouTube channel, we have, uh, our entire backlog uploaded there. So we encourage you to go check out if any of those sound interesting to you.
1: And these, uh, these politics episodes, um, all do standalone. You don't need to listen to all of them. But they also sort of provide a you know a unified, coherent uh, way of looking at politics. I think, and I think we'll get to talk about that more in the next episode, which will be our final part to this series. We started with the first part, talking about the nature of authority itself, talking about um, when Jesus says the leader must be the one who serves, uh, and you know the the last shall be first, the the least shall be the greatest. Um, and then next week or next week, <laughs> who knows a few weeks from now, uh, mm. we'll be chatting about next episode. Yes. Next episode. Um, Hey, same, usually I'm the one who does the like last week and is like, Oh, we recorded <laughs> that like a month ago. Yeah. There we go. I- I'm yeah. rubbing
0: off on you. Jeremy. So, so
1: next episode, same bat time, same bat channel. <laughs> um, we're going to be tackling, tackling, <laughs> we're going to be talking about and tackling, the kingdom of God uh, theology, which is, of course, kind of ties up all these uh, political issues together in a uh, more explicitly theological and less practical sort of uh, way to conclude it. So um, the one thing we haven't really tackled yet in the series is economics, which is a huge topic in political discussion. And the Jubilee year gets brought up a lot in that discussion for good reason, as we're about to see. So this is a long chapter in Leviticus. And our strategy for tackling it, we're gonna exposit it verse by verse. Um, Since John will be talking less, I'll probably have him read the passages as we go because there's 55 verses to read, plus a few cross uh, references. So there's a little more than 55 actually. And uh, we're going to go as quick as we can. This will be kind of like when we did the Jonah episode and we read all of Jonah in one episode. Uh, that's actually less verses, I think, though, than <laughs> this one <laughs> chapter of Leviticus. So, um, so that being said, we'll also do misconceptions as we go through the text. Uh, um, so we're going to give six Jubilee rules and then six misunderstandings or misconceptions to those rules as we go through the text. If you are watching this at home and not just listening in the car or while you're doing the dishes or whatever, which is when I listen to podcasts, um, open up your Bible. Probably a good idea for this one. If not, then listen intently because there's a lot. <laughs> yes. If you're uh, driving, please don't open up your Bible. <laughs> yes. Um that being said, uh, if let's there are just... any Bible
0: quizzers out there who, you know, did Leviticus quote along in your heads,
1: <laughs> hopefully you know it in the ESV. Cause that's what I'm, <laughs> I, uh, I'm going to have you read it in. So let's start out, uh, talking about context like we typically do. Um, and we're actually going to jump ahead to Leviticus 26. Now for brevity's sake, we're not going to talk about like the whole structure of the book of Leviticus. It's not super important to, uh, to understanding this this uh, one section but uh let's look at Leviticus 26 uh because that's where we're going to find some of the reasons why the jubilee year is important so it's kind of described and then in the next chapter the lord goes through all these like blessings if you obey my law and curses if you disobey it and it's tied very much to uh obedience to the uh jubilee and the sabbatical year so um so first, let's talk a little bit about the importance of the land, and then I'll I'll give you some quotes from Leviticus twenty six to sort of uh, show what I'm saying. So first of all, um, quoting the verse two, actually this is a chapter twenty five still. Uh, this is how the Lord kind of starts the section on the jubilee. It says, "When you come into the land that I give you," and uh, this is of course talking to the people of Israel. They're going to enter the promised land eventually. Uh, later when Joshua conquers it. Uh, And I think this is important to highlight right at the start, this concept that the Lord gives them the land. You're going to hear me talk about this a lot. Uh, Essentially, uh, the the reason why we obey the Lord's wishes for his land, besides just the fact that we obey the Lord anyways, is that it's a way of acknowledging his ultimate ownership of that land. Uh, we aren't the ultimate owners he is even though we might dwell in a given place and time we might own a piece of property uh the you know the lord's people the israelites might have owned property in israel but it's actually the lord's fundamentally like at the highest level um and so that's a huge theme of this whole uh, this whole concept is that uh, the Lord gets to decide what's done on his land. And he doesn't just want the land to be worked on. He wants the land to rest because, well, for a number of reasons, as we'll get into. Um, he wants Israel not to just work the land, but also to enjoy it and understand what it means uh, that, uh, that God gave it to them and acknowledge his rulership of it. So Let's look at Leviticus 26 and take some excerpts from it to help us understand why the concept of land is so significant, particularly in the ancient Near East. We miss a lot of this in our modern context. Uh, a lot of us are moving around uh, constantly. You know, we, we might understand the importance of owning property, but we don't get this concept of land quite the same way that they did back then. Uh, a lot of us don't work on the land. We just work a job to get money, which we exchange at a grocery store, and we don't think very much about the people who grow the food, uh, who, you know, manufacture the food to get it to the grocery store. So um, we're a little bit less tied to the land than they were. So I I have here four things that the land uh, does, or four things about the land that are significant. First of all, probably the most obvious uh, answer, it provides sustenance. And uh, the Lord promises blessing in Leviticus 26 when he says, I will give you rains in their season and the land shall yield its increase. That kind of thing. If you obey my law, there's going to be blessing, fruitfulness. You'll be able to eat good, basically. Uh, second uh, thing, provides a unified area of defendable space, Right. You can get some some borders. that So it's not just the idea of having your own plot of land, but the, the fact that you have like a nation and that nation resides in a place and time. Uh, that makes you less susceptible to attacks from foreign invaders, less susceptible to uh, being hurt or killed in violence. In Leviticus 26, God says, I will give peace in the land and you shall lie down and none shall make you afraid. So obviously the fact that the Lord is saying this indicates that it's a concern for the people of Israel at that time. Third thing um, provides a sense of situatedness. I don't know. (laughs) I don't know how to describe that word, but I hope, I hope it's uh, understandable to you all. Situatedness. Um, And there's a sense of generational
0: stability or putting down deep roots.
1: Yeah. um, Almost like shalom. I mean, we just said, you know, I will give peace in the land. It's this concept of like um, we're here and this is our place and my children will be here and my children's children will be here. There's this sense of generational continuity. Um, and the Lord promises this in Leviticus 26. He says, I will make you fruitful and multiply you and you shall eat old store long kept. This idea that uh, that uh, you're, there's a fruitful land, it's feeding you, you're safe there, and you're going to stay there. And the fourth thing I have, the last thing about the significance of the land is uh, more theological. Uh, The Lord dwells with his people in the land. He says, I will make my dwelling among you and I will walk among you and will be your God and you will be my people. So even more so than the sustenance, than the defense and the, the situatedness, those first three points, the Lord's actually going to be in this land of Israel with his people. Uh, and as people under the New Covenant, we understand that as the Holy Spirit resides within us and goes with us everywhere. Um, but uh, this idea that like uh, God can reside in a given place in time might sit a little weirdly with us because we know that God is everywhere uh, and God can't be tied to a, a, a place in time. But we know that the Lord Jesus was a real human being who was situated in a place in time and walked among us, right? So this idea that God will dwell in this land um, is huge and significant to Leviticus 26 as well. So these are just some of the many reasons why the Israelites were so tied up in this concept of land. I mean, we could get into the, the promise of Abraham, um, the Abrahamic covenant that God would bless him and give him land. That's a huge theme of Genesis. Uh, but uh, I think this will suffice. So what happens if they don't obey? <laughs> We've <laughs> talked about what happens when they do. and um, Spoilers, very bad things. <laughs> yeah, so this is kind of rough. Um, yeah. I, if you could read Leviticus 26, uh, 27 through 35, John, get your voice in here a little bit to break up my, <laughs> my sure. streak
0: yes so so there's there's all of these great blessings of the lord dwelling among you and you know prospering you know to the you know uh, through generations and things like that but then you get in verse 27 here it says but if in spite of this you will not listen to me and walk contrary to me then i will walk contrary to you in fury and i myself will discipline you sevenfold for your sins you shall eat the flesh of your sons and eat the flesh of your daughters, and I will destroy your high places and cut down your incense altars and cast your dead bodies upon the dead bodies of your idols, and your souls will ab- and my soul will abhor you. And I will lay your cities waste and will make your sanctuaries desolate. I will not smell your pleasing aromas, and I myself will devastate the land so that your enemies who settle in it shall be appalled by it and i will scatter you among the nations and i will unsheath the sword after you and your land will be a desolation and your cities shall be a waste <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's a that's pretty intense man
1: yeah well and there's a, there's a couple more verses there oh 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 sorry two two more verses here yeah, sorry this yeah, is I the kick dude this is the this is crazy
0: Oh, okay, okay. So then then here's the the conclusion. So uh, uh, your city shall be a waste. Then verse 34. Then the land shall enjoy its Sabbaths as long as it lies desolate. While you are in your enemy's land, then the land shall rest and enjoy its Sabbaths. As long as it lies desolate, it shall have rest. And the rest it did not have on your Sabbaths when you were dwelling in it.
1: Yeah, so if you didn't believe me when I said this is explicitly tied to obedience of the Sabbath, which is not this, I mean, we're going to be talking about the land's Sabbath today, which is different than the people's Sabbath. Um, I mean, yeah, this is exactly, there's a reason this content comes right after the Jubilee here. Um, But think about like the things that were just said in that passage. Uh, first of all, notice I will discipline you sevenfold for your sins. That's not an accidental number. Uh, the sabbatical year is the seventh number, uh, the seventh numbered year. And the Jubilee is the seventh seven, the seventh group of sevens. Um, it's the 49th year uh, or the 50th year, uh, depending on your interpretation. Put a pin in that and get to that later. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, sevenfold for your sins, right? So it's the opposite of the, the holy seven. This is a, well, this also is a holy seven, but it's a holy judgment um, of seven. And listen to sort of the reversal of all four of the things I just talked about when it comes to the importance of land. So the first mm-hmm. one is provide sustenance. Well, I mean, you're going to be so starving, you're literally going to cannibalize your own family, your own children. That's the, how dire the starvation will be. Uh, mm-hmm. What about the defense? The second point I made. Um, I will lay your cities waste. I will devastate the land. I will, so that your enemies who settle in it shall be appalled. I will scatter you among the nations and I will unsheath the sword after you. So death and violence, right? The third yeah. point, situatedness. And, and
0: ripping people out of the land and dispersing them somewhere else. Right. Yeah, the Which undoing speaks... of that concentration.
1: Yeah. Speaks to the situatedness, the scattering among the nations. Yeah. Um, There's no peace here. Right. And then the last point, the Lord dwelling with his people in the land. uh, Listen to this. I will destroy your high places. That's the the false places of worship. Um, My soul will abhor you. I will make your sanctuaries desolate and I will not smell your pleasing aromas. Your sacrifices will mean nothing to me. I won't dwell among you any longer. Mm -hmm. so all of these blessings of the land are reversed but guess what the lord still gets what he wants out of his land it's going to enjoy the sabbatical year whether the israelites allow it to or not
0: yeah the land the land is going to rest one way or another
1: if any if anyone thinks god is not a holy god that passage will put the fear of god into you like it's almost i'm getting goosebumps just thinking about this passage because it's horrifying in like a, a very holy way But Mm -hmm. it's truly a terrifying passage, the the sons and daughters part. Um, Let's just say it couldn't have been written any starker. (laughs) Um, Okay, so uh, in case you were wondering why this is important, now you know. (laughs) um so so okay so that's the context that's some a little bit about the land maybe that gets us into the mindset of why the land's important and what the blessings and curses are for failure to obey um uh yeah well and 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 maybe something to
0: point out is that there there are similar passages to this um to this that occur other places in um the 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 pentateuch in the first five books of the of the Old Testament, I'm thinking specifically of in uh, deuteronomy there's a there's a whole section that has similar kinds of things of like blessings for obedience to the law and curses if you break it. Um, but maybe just to to highlight that specifically here that the the blessing and the cursing is centered on uh uh like respecting or treating God's land properly. As opposed to in Deuteronomy, if I'm remembering correctly, the focus is more on um, following uh, God's law. And so it's, it's, not, it's not as explicitly tied to the land in that case um, as it is here, if it, again, if I'm remembering correctly. So that the, there, are, there are other places where you get discussion of blessings and cursings, but in here, the important thing is it's centered on the land.
1: Yeah, the Deuteronomy passage does mention the land, but I don't think, it, I think it's a little broader because um, it comes sort, sort of toward the end of the Pentateuch. So I think the idea there is if you fail to obey the whole law, right, just in any of its parts or concepts, um, yeah. uh, then the judgment comes, right? But you're right, Leviticus is more focused on that. So that's a little bit about the land and the blessings and curses. So what about, before we jump into the Jubilee proper, there's one other thing we need to talk about, and that's the concept of the sabbatical year. No, that's not when your professor is sick of teaching freshmen, so he um, <laughs> you know, writes a book right, or starts a podcast. Um, right. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, the sabbatical year, so, so just like in, in the Israelite world, Um, According to the Ten Commandments, you would rest on the seventh day from all your labor. Uh, God also commands that the land rest on the seventh year. So um, Exodus 23 sets this out in verses 10 and 11. Uh, If you want to read that, John, it's kind of the basics of of the sabbatical year.
0: Yes. So picking up in uh, verse 10 here, it says, For six years you shall sow your land and gather in its yield. But the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow that the young of your people may eat and what uh, they the leave. Poor, that the poor oh, that of the... your people. Oh, oh thank <laughs> you. That the poor of your people may eat and what they leave the beasts of the field may eat. You shall do likewise in your vineyards and with your olive orchard.
1: Yeah. So pretty straightforward, right? Um, The seventh year uh, you, you know you eat whatever is produced out of the sixth year and you harvest it and then you don't sow it so the seventh year you let it lie there uh Deuteronomy 15 uh talks about this more this is later in the law than Leviticus of course but it has some more detailed laws uh there's kind of like 11 verses about it it talks more about the concept of the poor in the land uh but I'll just read the the first 3 verses here um or, or you go for it, John <laughs> Oh, okay, yeah, so so starting in, in,
0: yeah, in verse one, it's uh, in Deuteronomy 15, "At the end of every seven years, you shall grant a release, and this is the manner of the release. Every creditor shall release what he has lent to his neighbor. He shall not exact it of his neighbor, his brother, because the Lord's release has been proclaimed." Of a foreigner, you may extract it, but whatever of yours is with your brother, you shall, uh, your hand shall release.
1: Yeah, so there's kind of an additional concept here to the sabbatical year of um, the release of debts, right? Uh, so, yeah, so there's but already not all this... debts. Well, it's <laughs> uh, very, so... very interesting. So there's this uh, this concept of the sabbatical year. So this was already something. Every seven years, the seventh year is a sabbatical year. And it's about release. Notice that, right? So mm-hmm. the, the you're, you're forgiving debts and you're letting the land rest, right? So it's a year of rest and and release. But Okay, so that's kind of cool, Moses and all. But what happens with when you have seven sevens? I mean, we are the <laughs> we're the people of Israel, and we have to have something cool with our symbolism. <laughs> I mean, like, what are we supposed to do? We got to do something cool about it. And, yeah, well,
0: it's like you know, you, yeah, you've already you've already got the seven day thing, and then you know, so now you need the seven years, and so then the seven seven years, and you uh, know, just gotta have this like nested hierarchy to it. So it's got to be something like really, really resty, right?
1: (laughs) Yeah, like exceptionally restful.
0: Um, (laughs) Super releasing.
1: (laughs) uh, Let's look into it because Moses had 55 verses to say about it. So um, let's tackle it. Uh, Let's hop right in. So I've chunked this up into sections, uh, which will, you know, pause and commentate in the middle of it. I'll have you read, John, and then if you have anything to say in the middle of of my exposition, please jump in. Uh, I'm sure things will come to your mind um, so all right i I love
0: <laughs> how much credit you're giving me here, jeremy uh, <laughs> so we'll uh so we are in um leviticus twenty five We'll start here in verse one. The Lord spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai, saying. Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, when you come into the land that I give you, the land shall keep a Sabbath to the Lord. For six years you shall sow your field, and for six years you shall prune your vineyards and gather its fruit. But in the seventh year there shall be a Sabbath of solemn rest for the land, a Sabbath to the Lord. You shall not sow your field or prune your vineyard. You shall not reap what it grows of itself in your harvest or gather the grapes of your undressed vine. It shall be a year of solemn rest for the land. The Sabbath of the land shall provide food for you and for yourself and for your male and female slaves and for your hired workers and the sojourner who lives with you and for your cattle and for the wild animals that are in your
1: land. All its yield shall be for food. All right. Uh, So yeah, this first section, not a whole lot to say because it's kind of just a a repetition of what we've already talked about with the sabbatical year. Uh, But also worth pointing out here is this uh, thing about you're not just prohibited from sowing, but also from uh, harvesting the natural growth that, that is in the field. So, you know, some stuff is going to be wild. You're actually not allowed to harvest even that. Um, only what comes out of the sixth year's sowing um, is allowed to be uh, harvested and consumed in the seventh year. Um, also notice the emphasis toward the end that this is required of all Israel. Uh, it talks about providing for yourself, for your slaves, your hired worker, and the sojourner who lives with you. And there's a lot of interesting stuff about sojourners and foreigners in this uh, and this chapter that we'll talk about, so that's interesting to point out. And lastly, it talks about your cattle and wild animals um, that are in your land. So uh, this is for everybody. Uh, the The Sabbath of the land is going to be providing for everybody. So, all right, uh, you can continue to the next section, John.
0: All right, we'll pick up in verse eight. You shall count seven weeks of years. That's seven um, seven collections of seven years, seven times seven years. So that the time of the seven weeks of your years shall give you 49 years. Then you shall sound the loud trumpet on the 10th day of the seventh month on the day of atonement. You shall sound the trumpet throughout all your land and you shall consecrate the 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you, when each of you shall return to his property, and each of you shall return to his clan. That fiftieth year shall be a jubilee for you. In it you shall neither sow nor reap what it grows of itself, nor gather the grapes from the undressed vines. For it is a jubilee, it shall be holy to you. You may eat the produce of the field."
1: All right. Uh, well, already we have a lot to talk about, so let's get into it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so first of all, um, we've already mentioned the number seven a lot, uh, but what does it mean? Uh, it's a little hard to pin down exactly. Something along the lines of perfection or completeness, right? So seven sevens is like uber complete, right? This is like a I hate to say this, it's going to be, some people aren't going to like this, but it's kind of like the sabbatical year on steroids, right? That's 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 what it is. It's the, the super version of it, right? It's right. even more seven than the seventh year. Um, so uh, basically uh, it, c- it commemorates the completion of 7-7. Seven, seven. So it's a perfect perfection. And um, because it's especially complete and perfect, the Jubilee enacts this kind of like, Newly refreshed era of history. Uh, it, it's like a things. I don't know. It's like uh, reverting back. Like we're refreshing the the, the time, the, the years. You know. Um, and so pe- debts are. You know, debts and slaves are released, and people return back to their ancestral land. The details of which um, are to follow. Um, But interesting, uh, so when does the Jubilee year start? It says the 10th day of the seventh month. Uh, So that's the Day of Atonement, uh, which is talked about elsewhere in Leviticus. Uh, And the Day of Atonement is the day on which forgiveness of sins is received by the whole nation. That's the the, uh, meaning of that festival um, and the the symbolic importance of it. So this is a day of the forgiveness of sins, which you know, ties along with this idea of like a newly refreshed era, right? Um your sins are forgiven, deaths are released, slaves are released, and you're going back home, right? So yeah, this is a this is a cool year. Like it is pretty perfect. You know, it is pretty complete. Um This is this deal. is like the, the fresh
0: install on your computer, you know, <laughs> yeah. that you've like wiped the hard drive and, you know, started from a like a you know a clean boot and uh <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah
1: yep uh usb iso and <laughs> the whole thing for sure yeah, you
0: you had to hold f12 while that <laughs> while that thing was powering on
1: <laughs> so what about this term jubilee itself it it merits a little comment here we have no idea what it means and that's kind of the short <laughs> that's the that's the comment <laughs> yeah the, the comment is like you know nerds talk about it um so let the nerds talk about it and we'll move on to more important things. Uh, th- you know there's a theory that it means ram's horn since that's uh you know what the blown trumpet is. So uh it, you know it would it would have been a ram's horn not like a brass trumpet that you would see in an orchestra today. Uh so we don't really know. Uh well, it's Well <laughs> I
0: I actually have a question Jeremy because it's um it in in English it's sort of a uh, a specific term. And so, like, how do we get the anglicized, like, version of Jubilee? Is it just sort of like the English approximation of how we think the Hebrew would be pronounced, or is it is there some other kind of etymology to where our English word comes from? Do you know?
1: I'm glad you asked. I just looked it up because I don't remember the word. Yavel, Yavel, is how it's pronounced. I'm trying to see yeah, where the e doesn't e-e- really sound anything like Jubilee. <laughs> Well, I think it does, um, especially if you know how it yeah, typically well. gets transliterated. Um, okay. Yo, yeah, Yovel. Yeah, it's it. It's actually yo, veil. So not yeah, the well, B guess, sound. Like, but we the we B get B Jacob
0: sound. from like Yaakov, which Yaakov,
1: yeah, Yaakov. Um, yeah. So it. You know it's related to the word for ram's horn, so that's probably what it is um but uh, yeah, I didn't do a whole lot of research in that. I just kind of saw that it was debated, and it was like, oh okay, well, that sounds nerdy
0: uh, <laughs> probably made... too too deep for our podcast
1: <laughs> right like completely not like not the most important thing. The point is it's the name of the festival, the name of the day, or mm-hmm. sorry, the name of the year, the name of the event, right right um, it's sort of like. Like, do you understand what Halloween is all about by explaining how it comes from All Hallows Eve? And like, no, like you would explain Halloween by saying, yeah, everybody gets dressed in costumes and goes trick-or-treating, you know? So, uh, yeah, that's that's my argument for why I don't care that much about this. (laughs) Okay, Uh, granted. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So, so, okay. So, um, yeah, so there's a few elements about that text here. Now let's, let's uh, airdrop in on our first rule of the Jubilee, and then we'll do our first misconception um, that, that ties into this part of the text. So rule number one, all the sabbatical year rules also apply to Jubilee years as well. No sowing, even gathering what grows on its own. Uh, just enjoy last year's harvest. That's the point, right? Um, and then we also have uh, the element of the debts that would normally be practiced, right. which is not uh, mentioned specifically here, um, but uh, but it follows because it's you know sabbatical rule. Mm-hmm. Uh, and here's the first misconception that we can uh, point out here: uh, there is an idea that the jubilee was only a symbolic or utopian idea uh, or idealistic, and was never actually practiced, and it perhaps wasn't even intended to be practiced. Now, there is an argument to be made that it never was practiced. I don't think that it was, uh, I don't think there's a good argument that it was never intended to be practiced. <laughs> um, so we don't really have a whole lot of other references to the Jubilee in scripture. Uh, there's other Old Testament references. So for that reason, a lot of people think, you know, the, the Jews must never have followed it. Well, yeah. that's an argument is in... from silence.
0: Which is in contrast with like, you know, we do have examples in the historical books of the discussion of the Passover being practiced, you know, so, so where, you know, it's like Passover is definitely something that's was important, you know, down the road, but it's like, you know, we also get that sort of in the, um, practice of the, you know, the nation state of Israel pre exile, you know, we, we have examples of the Passover being practiced. And so it's not that. You, you know, so you might expect if this thing, this big event did happen, that maybe it would have been brought up in a historical book. And so, Grant, that that is an argument from silence, but, you know,
1: it's worth pointing out, but it just isn't a very conclusive point right. is all, you know, uh, there's other things that are central to, you know, the ceremonial law um, and the cult practices of Israel which aren't mentioned outside of the law of Moses, um, but we know from historical evidence that they were practiced, uh, or they weren't mentioned in the Old Testament, but they're like in the Book of Hebrews randomly. Uh, there's like a section in Hebrews nine that talks about some of the elements of how the tabernacle is set up and stuff. So it's treated as though it were a real thing in the New Testament, and um, so and plus this only happened every fifty years, you know. So maybe this, maybe it was a big event, but it just never was a huge part of any biblical narrative story, you know?
0: Um, yeah, it didn't happen to overlap with like, you know, a, you know, miraculous, you know, a, you know, thing that a prophet's doing or something.
1: Right. Yeah. So, yeah. So we don't have any direct evidence of it being practiced, but I certainly think given Leviticus twenty six's discussion of giving the land its Sabbath's um, like, I think it was intended to be practiced for sure. I think to say otherwise would be, Putting a weird hermeneutical framework on Leviticus, um, actually, I think... y- yeah, because because that, that that's a good point because um,
0: because the people are sent into exile and the land does you know lie fallow for you know that period of time that they're in exile for so it, it's like from that standpoint. God does punish them for not doing it.
1: <laughs> sure. <laughs> but they also didn't do a lot of other things and did well, a lot of things true. they shouldn't have. So it's like, if none of that's conclusive is the problem. Right. So, so, but there's a, another issue that gets brought up in relation to this. Um, you know, the, the argument that it wasn't intended to be practiced would point out, well, two straight years of fallow land, they're going to starve to death. Right. Uh, I think this is clearly a wrong argument for two reasons. First, (laughs) the very concept of giving the land a year of rest already required faith. Um, Now, crop rotation and letting the land rest and stuff that there is. I'm no farmer. I'm no agricultural expert. But my understanding is there's wisdom in that kind of naturally. So, So, you know, there's some element of that. But still, like... The whole point of the sabbatical year is that it's radical, right? It requires faith on the part of the people to trust that the Lord will provide enough in the sixth year. Um, So already there's this element of faith and supernatural provision uh, baked into the idea of the one year of fallow land. So there's no reason in the text or in theology to exclude that this was possible. Uh, The Lord certainly could have worked this way. But second, and I think more persuasively, uh, there's good evidence in the text that there weren't two straight years of fallow land. So, and I'm going to have to twist. Yeah. So I'm it's gonna, only one year. <laughs> yeah. So, and, and we'll have to get a little later in the text before I can make the argument, but um, the Jubilee year, I believe overlaps the seventh sabbatical. They're the same year, which might sound crazy based on what we just read when it says the 50th year, just bear with me. Okay. It's like 10 verses down. So, uh, (laughs) so that's the first misconception. This idea that the the Jubilee was uh, never intended to be practiced. I think that's wrong. Um, And I also think it's inconclusive whether or not it actually was practiced. So, all right. Want to pick up on verse 13? For sure.
0: Uh, Picking up in verse 13. In this year of Jubilee, each of you shall return to his property. And if you make a sale to your neighbor or buy from your neighbor, you shall not wrong one another. You shall pay your neighbor according to the number of years after the jubilee, and he shall sell to you according to the number of years for crops. If the years are many, you shall increase the price, and if the years are few, you shall reduce the price, for it is the number of crops that he is selling you. You shall not wrong one another, but you shall fear the Lord your. Or you shall fear your God, for I am the Lord
1: your God. All right. Uh. Thanks, John. So, one thing that might help us orient us toward the language being used in Leviticus, it talks about selling and buying land, but it's you're not actually selling and buying it in the modern terminology. We're thinking of it more in terms of leasing the land. So since the Jubilee is a known element of Israelite uh, economics, uh, this is Leviticus, and so it's way before they conquer the land, right? So this is already a concept that Moses has handed down to the people. Um, They expect that there's going to be a Jubilee year. That's part of the whole point. Or they're supposed
0: to (laughs) expect it.
1: (laughs) Well, (laughs) yeah. (laughs) Um, So when you're selling your land that you know is going to return to you at the Jubilee, the buyer anticipates that. That's part of the economy, right? Um, So, And they know that it's going back no matter what. So they're thinking of it more as a lease uh, and not as selling and buying. So that might help clear the the terminology. That's one thing that's kind of perplexed me when I uh, read this passage casually without doing like a a deep dive or whatever.
0: Yes, and and I think verse 16, the second half of it, is is probably the clarifying piece. It says, you know, for it's the number of crops that he is selling to you. And so you kind of get that explicitly there of, like, the point is, it, it's not that he's selling you the land, he's, like, selling you the right to grow crops on it for a period of time.
1: Right, yep. And the value of the land is equated to the produce of it, right? right. So, um and notice in verse 17, there's you're this... buying futures on crops. Mark. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. There's no crypto yet. This is the best investment you have. Um, <laughs> so it's, and I'd I like to point out in verse 17, when it says, you know, you shall not wrong one another, but sh- you shall fear your God. There's this, this repeated concept in the year of the Jubilee. This is about promoting social relationships and giving a national coherence and a kind of like a family clan sort of coherence. Uh, to the nation of Israel, it's over personal profit, right? This is about the community, not about uh, not about one's own profit, and that's why that uh, command to not wrong one another kind of recurs throughout this passage. Mm-hmm. All right, uh, let's lay down uh, rule two and misconception two. First of all, uh, rule number two: the land always goes back to its original owner in the jubilee, um, and the buying and selling done between jubilees is understood as temporary, and it's priced accordingly. Misconception number two. Uh, okay, so because of this, as a consequence of this, enacting anything along the lines of the Jubilee property laws in our present climate is just flat out bonkers. <laughs> <laughs> like our present socio-political economic climate. The entire Israelite real estate market depends on like the Jubilee being a concept that is known and socially... To some extent agreed upon, and people are aware of it um, from the moment the land's conquered and apportioned by Joshua uh, so this is like <laughs> we haven't really talked yet about any sort of the Jubilee is like frequently talked about by progressives that's that's like the thing and and it's used to justify progressive economic opinions um. And we'll get to talk a lot about that as we go. But for here, I'll just point out that like this whole concept of people returning to their land, if you're trying to apply this in the present day, you're missing a massive amount of context to why this was just to do and to have in the law. Um, And a huge part of that is that the entire real estate market depends on it. (laughs) Like, Like all the decisions made are relying upon this event occurring, which you know, I don't yeah. know if you noticed, is not the, the context in America right now. And this is before we get to the other details in the text, which will further illuminate just how ridiculous it is to try to, like, do a one-to-one from the Jubilee to the present day. Uh, just on this point alone, it's already—we're already off the rails, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. All right, uh, go for it, John. Let's keep reading. All right,
0: verse 18. Therefore, you shall do my statutes and keep my rules and perform them. And then you will dwell in the land securely. The land will yield its fruit and you will eat your fill and dwell in it securely. And if you say, what shall we eat in the seventh year if we may not sow or gather in our crop? I will command my blessing on you in the sixth year so that it will produce a crop sufficient for three years. When you sow in the eighth year, you will be eating some of the old crop. You shall eat the old until the ninth year when the crop arrives.
1: All right. Good stuff. So the Lord blesses obedience to his rules by promising to provide and to give abundant provision so that you can enjoy it in the sabbatical year and in the year of Jubilee. Um, and, uh, you know, in the present day, this could just mean like preparing for the Lord's day in our own homes, right? Uh, on Saturday night, get some sleep <laughs> right? Like <laughs> right. be prepared for worship on Sunday morning, uh, mm-hmm. figure out a way to get out the door with your kids, um, in a way that's going to make you relatively on time and stuff, you know, it's a, it, it, you know, we can do it every Saturday night as we prepare, um, just like the Israelites had a whole year to prepare for their seventh day. Um, right, and that's the case whether or not you are a Presbyterian Sabbatarian view or you just go to church on Sunday and you're a good old Baptist right uh, whether you <laughs> regardless <laughs> of your viewpoint on on the Sabbath and its relevance um uh to the Lord's day to sunday uh prepare for worship right that's a good application point here mm-hmm. um and the Lord will bless that with spiritual uh benefits at church you know i i get right. a lot more out of and, church when i'm rested that's just <laughs> for sure
0: and and this whole uh you know notion of like having faith that god is going mirac- to do this miraculous provision in the sixth year or this provision in the sixth year follows very naturally from how the people of israel have been you know who are receiving this revelation have been living their entire lives or th- their lives wandering in the wilderness is that um You know the manna that they receive every week, you know the command was collect manna six days, but on the Sabbath you don't collect you know manna for your household, but you know the day before you collect twice as much um and there's this whole story about uh you know it's like the manna doesn't come on the seventh day um and you know and it doesn't persist through to the next day in you know except on the sixth day when you collect two and then it then it lasts you know it's it's very kind of miraculous, like God saying. Just collect enough for today, and on the sixth day, prepare for the seventh day, and, I'm like, I got you is, you know, kind of the the punchline there to, you know. <clears throat> and so we see that this is kind of a a repetition of that same kind of idea showing up here, that it's, you know, God's kind of saying, you know, hey, you, like, you know how every week, like, I provide enough on the sixth day so that you don't need to collect on the seventh? Like, I can do that same thing on the sixth year to, like, have it be that you'll have enough on the seventh year without harvest,
1: See, John's out here thinking he can't contribute anything because he didn't read the outline. But that was not in the outline. He just thought of that one. I didn't even think of that. So, Oh, thanks, Jeremy. Um, Well done. Good sir. Uh <laughs> like I said good at pretending like I know what I'm talking about. <laughs> well no, that's like an extremely valid point in application. Oh. <laughs> like <laughs> like that's Thank definitely th- that's definitely the case, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's, yeah, anytime you got like the week, this you know, these groups of seven, that's that's all tied up in this concept. So, okay, so so now I'm going to make my argument for the Jubilee being a replacement of the seventh sabbatical year instead of the 50th year. It's the 49th year. All right. So I'm going to make that argument here. This paragraph doesn't make any sense if we are talking about uh, the 50th year being the Jubilee and the 49th year as the 7th sabbatical. Uh, So let's look at it. It says, um, if you say, what shall we eat in the 7th year if we may not sow or gather in our crop? Well, wouldn't the 8th year be the concern? Um, the seventh year, you should be fine because it would be like any other sabbatical year. Um, you know, uh, you just, the Lord provides, right? Um, so the eighth year would be the concern when you didn't sow in the seventh year. Uh, so that doesn't make a whole lot of sense because the eighth year would have been, of course, the the uh, jubilee, the 50th year. So that number doesn't work. What about when it says um, that the sixth year, So so God says, I will command my blessing on you in the sixth year so that it will produce a crop sufficient for three years. Uh, So the sixth year produces a crop sufficient for three years only. But if you're not planting for the seventh or the eighth year, then you're going to need something in the ninth year, right? So you actually kind of need it to provide for the sixth, seventh, eighth, and ninth year, which is four years. So that number doesn't work. What about uh, when it says, when you sow in the eighth year, uh, you will be eating some of the old crop. You shall eat the old until the ninth year when its crop arrives. So you sow in the eighth year, but, but isn't that the Jubilee year? <laughs> if it's the 50th year, right? The, the, the eighth year? Oh, okay. Okay. You eat the... <laughs> I, I, I'm picking up. This, this is good. All right. All right. Okay. Yeah. So So you eat the eighth year's crop in the ninth year. Um, Well, yeah, so you sow in the eighth year, and then you eat that crop in the ninth year, which would be the 51st year in this schema. So what's going on here? Because earlier we talked about, uh, I think it's back in like verse 5th, where is it? Uh, Verse 10, sorry. It says, you shall consecrate the 50th year. It shall be a jubilee for you. That 50th year shall be a jubilee for you. So what's going on here? The numbers don't really quite work, right? Clearly, the Bible is wrong. Uh, <laughs> atheists okay, can, can, can are already I, typing in the comments.
0: Right? right can, can I can I guess? Is it that we're? Is it that the the year gets double counted? In what sense? Uh, that it's like it's the um, that the jubilee year is also year one of the next like cycle, and so that when you then count up, you get to fifty. That's yep. Yeah, that's a good
1: guess. That's my best theory. oh okay okay cool okay interesting so okay this is like you
0: know with reigns of kings sometimes they get like double counted
1: yeah so Um, I'm i'm going to make the argument that um these numbers seem to directly contradict so there has to be an explanation right and even if you're an atheist looking at the bible you have to think like well, come on. It can't contradict itself like within 10 verses of itself, right? There's clearly <laughs> there's another explanation here. It's not like, Moses. Know, Moses
0: was just like as bad at mental math as I am.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so I think, it, I think the Jubilee replaces the sabbatical. And um, f- there's several different ways of looking at it. First of all, the ancient ways of thinking about time don't exactly mesh with our own, just in general. And the ways they count time can be confusing and difficult to translate. Um, so, and even think like in our own modern parlance, we might say like, uh, for example, let's take the date range, January 3rd to January 7th. Well, that sounds like a four day difference, right? Seven minus three is four, but it involves five days, January 3rd, 4th, 5th, 6th, and 7th. So there's always some sort of difficulty when it comes to counting time, you know, uh, the uh number zero problem that that uh, when you start counting by zero in computer science it's a similar uh issue so i think there p- could possibly be a uh misunderstanding of the way they counted time i don't have a complicated argument for that and it's sort of beyond the beyond the scope of what we need to discuss um But I think that that's possible. But I think probably more likely is kind of what you were saying, John, is that uh, 50 is in some sense symbolic. The author just counts it as two years, like we're doing the sabbatical and the jubilee year together. So yeah, even though it's only one year, um, we're figuratively calling it two and we're rounding it off to an even 50. Um, So I think that's probably the most likely because that deals with the symbolic nature of the jubilee and the sabbatical years themselves. Uh, which is not to say that it's, that the number is unimportant. I just think that there is some symbolism in this text. Uh, and that would well, make sense of the fact that there is symbolism.
0: In the text. That, that's very interesting. And I immediately have questions. Uh, <laughs> it's, not, not to, be, um, And so one of them is it's uh, like, I, I don't know if ancient Israel had like a decimal number system. Uh, and so like, I don't know if 50 would strike them as being a round number, like for you and me, you know, we're very much like decimal numbers, like, you know, so things coming in decades are, are like nice round numbers to us, but I actually don't know if ancient Israel had a decimal number system or if they didn't. Cause like some ancient cultures, you know, had used like base 60 or base or like things being off base 12 were, um, really useful as well. So so I'm immediately very curious about that and I need to do some googling now but uh but I guess I would say maybe I'll like play devil's advocate here just a little bit uh and say it's like well it could be possible that it's not the case that the jubilee is coincident with the 49th year that like the seventh sabbath uh but it is actually a the the 365 days after that so it is 50 in the way that we would count it uh and uh, like, you know, is it possible that just this like section here is kind of just taking a pause from the general discussion of the Jubilee and just kind of like interjecting some about regular Sabbath years? Yep. That would be
1: the the alternative explanation. Oh, okay. okay. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So once again, you're on top of it. Uh, so I, I appreciate it. Um, yeah. So, so that's the other way of making sense of it. Uh, and then, like I said, then the Lord just provides enough for two years. Either way. It doesn't like either way. It works. You can find an easy explanation for it Um, But uh, we have to resolve it somehow so I find this other theory interesting and I think I think I I lean in that direction for sure Um, But you're definitely right that the author could be uh, simply re recapitulating a discussion of the sabbatical year However, that feels like it would be a really terrible way to write a book because it's very unclear in that case Right, um, which is the reason I might go with the uh, the symbolic interpretation and the the uh, jubilee supplanting the sabbatical. Explanation. Now, of course, if you were a more liberal critical scholar, you would just say, "Well, yeah, I mean, uh, the the editor of Leviticus who was not Moses and who lived in you know 500 years after Moses, who lived in this the post-exilic period, whatever it is, you know, um, probably interpolated that that paragraph into the middle of the section, not knowing how it would affect the flow of the passage, which is just like a super disrespectful to um, the ancients and their wisdom, but also be unbelieving and dumb uh so we'll, we'll leave it at that um okay but, i
0: i i have one other thought i'm sorry that i'm like caught on this but you started talking about numbers and it's like and i got a degree in math man so this is like my thing this is but, literally
1: actually what you do know when you're this is actually my area of specialty uh <laughs>
0: um so it occurs to me that the jubilee doesn't start on the first day of the first month it starts on the, what was it, the fifth day of the 10th the month? Whatever the Day of Atonement is. The, the, the
1: seventh day of the 10th month.
0: So it starts like, so the Jubilee year starts
1: partway sorry, through a year that's sorry, already I going? It, I have to interrupt. I said it wrong. It's the 10th day of the 7th month.
0: Oh, 10th day of the 7th <laughs> month. Okay, great. Uh, so, it, so it occurs to me that um, it starts like a little more than halfway through another year. Um, and so is it is it possible that it's that the Jubilee like spans two, so that it's like it it it's coincident with half of the previous Sabbath year and half of the following year. And that would also work because harvest isn't until like the following fall. Well, actually, I don't remember when the Jewish calendar starts. at I, I was thinking January. But um, do you happen to know when in the seasons the Jewish calendar starts?
1: I wouldn't off the top of my head. Okay. They had a funky calendar. Sure. Okay. Well. But anyway. So it. It. Okay. Here's my. Here's my theory that I'm. I'm sticking to
0: because I'm a little bit of a contrarian. Uh, I. I don't. I think it's halfway in between. <laughs> the jubilee's a special year, and it's fiftieth in the sense that it, it's another one, but it starts halfway through the forty ninth year and overlaps with year one of the next like, set of the cycle.
1: (laughs) You know, I'm impressed. You managed to escape the horns of the dilemma with a theory I hadn't even thought of. So, I'm going to demand you show up at the next episode with some research on this one, okay? (laughs) Okay, okay. I'm sorry, that's... I don't think we're going to be able to pull up any like research on that in the middle of this recording, but
0: (laughs) (laughs) okay. I I will, I will report back or if anybody in our listening audience knows, or if you have your favorite theory of what the Jubilee year is, you should send it to the John Three Fifteen (laughs) podcast at gmail.com.
1: Well, uh, thank you for poking holes in my theory. I liked my theory, but now I'm less certain. Um, (laughs) Uh, Please continue (laughs) with the reading if you would.
0: All right. Okay. Got to like, you know, get my serious face on as I'm using the Lord's voice here. But uh, (laughs) all right. So picking up in verse 23, the land shall not be sold in perpetuity for the land is mine. For you are strangers and sojourners with me. And in all the country you possess you shall allow a redemption of the land. If your brother becomes poor and sells part of his property, then his nearest redeemer should come and redeem what his brother has sold. If a man has no one to redeem it, then him er, then himself uh, and then himself becomes prosperous and finds sufficient needs to redeem it, let him calculate the years since he sold it and pay back the balance to the man to whom he sold it and then return to his property. But if he does not have sufficient means to recover it, then what he sold shall remain in the hand of the buyer until the year of Jubilee in the Jubilee, it shall be released and he shall return to his property.
1: All right. So first we talked about leaving the land to rest. And now we swap, we swap to this other topic of, uh, returning to land. Um, and uh, this, you know, goes into the whole concept of, you know, in a normal sabbatical year, you would release debts. And in the Jubilee year, you would even go back to ancestral property and land. So uh, this this is very important. We talked about land a lot earlier. The importance of the land not being sold in perpetuity, quote unquote, it's so highlighted that even when the person who sold the property is not able to pay the buyer at all, The Jubilee enforces a return. So this is pretty crazy, right? This is um, a means by which people who, um, at the very last uh, resort, who are incapable of properly paying back the person, it's still so important to to God that people return to their land that they return anyways in the Jubilee. So there's a three-step process to this that was just described in the text. First of all, you have someone called the Kinsman Redeemer who comes back to pay, uh, who comes to buy back the land. Um, you know, so the land has already been sold to another party. And the Redeemer, who is somebody who is, um, you know, nearest, you know, nearest kin.
0: Yes, yeah, like uh, your uncle or something.
1: Right. They have the advantage <clears throat> of, keep. you know, basically they buy it and they're able to keep the land in the hands of the clan, the family who owned it. Um So that's much preferable to having it be owned by another family. Um, And that goes into the whole concept of, you know, how the land is allotted to tribes and and from the tribes, it's allotted to the peoples. Um, And God wants to maintain that. So uh, perhaps it also indicates that the kinsman kind of has the right of first purchase before the land is sold to another party. It's a little ambiguous in the text. So it could be that like you would tell your uncle first, you know, like, hey, I'm, I'm like poor, I have to sell this, you know? And so he would have the right of first purchase. But uh, it it, it kind of also indicates that if you've already sold it to another party, there is some, some uh, obligation uh, to, if you have means, and you're in the family of the poor person to come and purchase it.
0: Yeah. And, and that would, and that would make sense to, well, oh, sorry, ne- never, mind. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking of in Ruth, we have an example of a kinsman, redeemer sort of thing going down but i guess yes. at that point it's like it's already been sold yeah uh, yeah so this would be yeah. redeeming after the fact so okay never mind
1: yeah you're right boaz plays the role of a, of a kinsman redeemer in that story for sure well
0: so. the secondary kinsman redeemer there's another guy that you know he has to yeah
1: yeah that's right i forgot about that yeah it's a whole great drama we
0: should do something on ruth as a oh. future episode
1: oh man like the passage oh yeah there's plenty To do in Ruth. Oh, goodness. Uh, Now I'm I'm, okay. I got to focus on this episode. Now you got me off in like random. Yeah. Like the the passage where they're in the field together at night. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. We got to do that one someday. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) I don't know what I think of that passage. <laughs> but maybe to circle back to the discussion of the
0: Jubilee, since I you know, to prevent us from derailing too much. So number one, the Kinsman Redeemer comes and, you know, buys it back if it's been sold. But there's also the possibility that uh, you know, there is no Kinsman Redeemer, uh, in which case there is uh uh you know, but but say it's like, you know, he sold it, you know, year five after the Jubilee or something like that. It's still like 45 years before the Jubilee's gonna come around or 44 years. And it's like, you know, maybe after 10 years, he works hard and, you know, uh, accrues for himself some wealth again. Uh, you know, he bounces back from his hard times. Well, then this passage says, well, if you bounce back, you, you should you should go and buy back the land that you sold to somebody else. You know, so if, if you sold it because of poverty and you get money again, you should go buy it back.
1: Yeah. Um, and he maintains the right to purchase it back. That's kind of like a, a crucial element here because the property doesn't actually belong to the person he sold it to in the Lord's mind. Right? right. Um, and so it doesn't matter if the person he sold it to wants it, uh, or not, uh, or wants to sell it back or not. If the price, the fair price that's calculated, uh, is there, then he has to have the transaction happen. He's obligated to, um, so so we've got the kinsman redeemer, we've got the ability of the original impoverished man to go back and purchase his property if he uh, comes to means. Um, and then lastly, uh, if there's no redeemer and the impoverished man is never able to buy it back, it goes back to him anyways. Debt is canceled. Um, and the passage doesn't really comment much on the concept of like, well, maybe that'll encourage people not to work very hard in the meantime, you know. Um, so that's, that's something that, you know, might, might come to people's minds. I know it comes to mine a little bit, but I think, you know, you would still be able to keep whatever you earn while you're off the land, right? So the, you would still be incentivized to, uh, to work and, and produce for yourself, even if you know, uh, you know, even if you know you're, you're going to go back anyways, but it could potentially incentivize somebody I suppose, to. Make slightly less than the price, <laughs> but anyways, right?
0: Well, you know, but and, and but I guess the other thing is, um, if uh, uh, you know, the Jubilee doesn't come around all that often,
1: and yeah, like once uh, in a person's lifetime for well, the most part, it depends on when you're born, once in
0: a person's lifetime, because I mean, you know, for us, it's like it's pretty reasonable that most people are going to make it to 50 you know, these days, but you know, back in, in ancient Israel time, it's like, I'm not sure you'd really get that guarantee. So it's, I mean, there's probably tons of people who would never have seen a Jubilee. They would have been born after it happened and died before it would have happened again.
1: Right. Yeah. And it could happen twice, but like, maybe not when you're the first one, you wouldn't probably be old enough to own your own property. That kind of thing, you know, it happens when you're 20, probably don't have property yet. Uh, Then you're 70, you're an old man. And then it finally happens again. (laughs) Right. So, okay, so we're gonna lay down Jubilee rule number three and misconception three. So the third rule of the Jubilee, the land always goes back to the original family, even if the buyer slash leaser cannot be fairly compensated. So they take the L <laughs> uh T is Twitter lingo. They take the loss for those of you who are less online than me. Well, do they I think I think I disagree with that
0: that uh casting because the Because the whole idea was it was originally sold with the notion- like with the understanding that it was going to be given back, and so i so uh, I don't think, yeah you know what yeah
1: you're right so i so i I don't think it's that the buyer
0: takes the loss or that they you know they aren't going to be fairly compensated i I think it's more the important piece that the land always goes back to the original family, and it's like and if you could compensate the buyer early then then that that that's what needs to happen. But otherwise, it's like, you know, there, there's this guarantee of like permanent, uh, there's guarantee against permanent impoverishment.
1: Yeah, that's a good point that I, I had, <clears throat> see even in the midst of this discussion, I swapped back to modern thinking about property. <laughs> but yeah, you're right. Like, yeah, it's he always expected to have it for only 50 years or whatever, you know, yeah. or less than that, depending on when it was purchased. So uh, fair point. But the point being, if he wants to stay there, if he's got like a really sick view of the city of Jerusalem, sorry, <laughs> like, you know, you can see it in the distance. That's actually not the case. This would have he been just more remodeled angered. his bathroom. And... <laughs> <Right? Yeah. laughs> so uh, that's Jubilee Rule Three. Always goes back to the original family, and then uh, misconception number three. Um, <laughs> okay, so this goes goes into the whole you know progressive economic uh, viewpoint again. Um, we should just cancel all debts, right? That's that's what the Jubilee says. That, that, that cancel student debt. Yeah, that would be great for society, right? Um, it's, yeah, it's fabulous. So first of all, we're only talking about land here, not all kinds of debt. Um, and we don't have time, I'm afraid, to get into the whole like Deuteronomy 15 passage about the release of debts and stuff. But I mean, mm-hmm. the Jubilee, it's only talking about going back to your land. Um, and it's also like, as we've been talking about, it's, it's kind of not, it's not really the same thing as like owing a student loan <laughs> or a car loan. This is kind right. of a different thing because of the whole economy being based on the Jubilee. Right. Yes. Um, it's,
0: you, you know, it, it, it's not that like you give somebody a sum of money and then, you know, under the, you know, understanding that they're going to give you that sum of money back later. It's you're selling them rights to like yield the crop and then, they did yield the crop and this right. well, so is like
1: hopefully if they didn't that's on them right so it's like if that sense, <laughs> like the contract was fulfilled like <laughs> yeah yeah and now it is so it is it's like a state-enforced contract to be sure like mm-hmm. uh libertarians like ourselves um not like ourselves but maybe some other libertarians would have a problem with this because it is pretty much state-enforced or at least like you know local um Clan leadership enforced.
0: <laughs> um, uh, well, we we could we could have an interesting discussion of uh, the enforcement because one of the interesting pieces is who's actually cited as the person who enforces
1: this. True. Yeah, and that's it, a good point. It's but, it, yeah, a lot that, of it is custom. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> for sure so um, i'm not
0: even sure this is actually state enforced anyway hot take
1: but. yeah i mean it's not state enforced in the way that like the federal government enforces things certainly right. it's but it's enforced on some level even if it's extremely strong social ostracism in an era where that means you die <laughs> You know, so it can be like really strongly enforced in ways that are not like a centralized state but which right. are kind of a state you know um but I just, I just want to say, you know, hardcore libertarians who may think
0: like it's okay, don't, don't leave, don't leave. Just hear us out, hear us out. <laughs> yeah,
1: <right. laughs> but it's important to point out that it's this is not like canceling, like woohoo, we're canceling all debts, right? That's not what it's right. talking about. It's talking about returning to, to land. So it's um, a state enforced leasing and and returning to land, um, a state enforced by some definition, um, and <laughs> under and just, a
0: sufficient definition of
1: state. <laughs> <laughs> and just note the, yeah, note the major differences between this kind of society and our society. This is very family, kin, clan, right? This is what the society is oriented around. If you yeah. can't buy it back, your kinsman redeemer can right? It stays in the family. It's not all about you. It's not even all about the poor person. They're, they are being taken care of here, but it's not, it's not all about them. That's not the main focus of this passage. It's talking about how we can keep things in the family. Right, how uh, right. the land is not sold in perpetuity. Certain clans don't become extremely rich at the expense of other clans, um, and certain tribes don't become, uh, you know, uh, extravagantly rich at the expense of other tribes. Uh, this is not an atomized society like the present society. And I think a lot of the problems with, uh, if I can get on my soapbox for a second, the, a lot of the the rhetoric around um, progressive economics. This whole like, you know, whether it's the minimum wage or Uh, people sick of their student loan debt and so much of it is just like family breakdown Um, most people don't have an answer to the question if everything went wrong who would I go to for help a lot of people don't have never thought about that before Mm -hmm. Um, you know a lot of frankly a lot of parents kind of raise their kids and then just tell them to leave you know and they don't talk much as adults to their I mean, when their kids are adults they don't talk much to their parents and stuff. So we have a very atomized and defamilified <laughs> society yeah. and that makes this very different. That's another important context. Uh, that's yeah, different. Yeah,
0: yeah. In and, and in particular I, I would say the, the the relevant piece is that um parents and children become financially decoupled largely um upon the children becoming adults where that that doesn't seem to be the kind of case in ancient Israel, where you would become like financially independent from your parents, like in an immediate sense, necessarily.
1: Right. Very true. Well, we should uh, proceed. Uh, There's plenty more to talk about uh, debt and um, interest as we go on. So, um, all right.
0: So verse 29 here then. So if a man sells a dwelling house in a walled city, he may redeem it within a year of its sale for a full year he shall be given he shall be given the right of redemption if it is not redeemed within the full year then the house in the walled city shall become shall belong in perpetuity to the buyer throughout his generations it shall not be released in the jubilee but the house of the villages that have no walls around them shall be classified with the fields of the land they may be redeemed and they shall be released in the jubilee As for the cities of the Levites, the Levites may redeem at any time the houses in the cities they possess, and if one of the Levites exercises his right of redemption, then the house that was sold in the city they possess shall be released in the Jubilee. For the houses in the cities of the Levites are their possession among the people of Israel, but the fields of the pasture land belong to their cities or or belonging to their cities may not be sold for that is their possession forever.
1: Yeah. So we have this um, paragraph here pointing out some special cases uh, of property to consider. Mm -hmm. Um, Not all property is subject to the Jubilee laws. You have this like concept of walled city living, which is different than uh, living directly off the produce of a field. Uh, And therefore, you know, this property could be bought and sold however the owner wished after one year. So there was a period of time in which you could, uh, you know, uh, demand you get the property back. But once it's, you know, once it's passed to another person for a year, they can hold it however long they like. They can sell and buy it however they want. Um, And, you know, uh, there's there's plenty of reasons for this. I think part of it is simply that... uh, um, and this is something my pastor pointed out a while ago when he preached on the Jubilee, like over time, more people are going to be congregating in cities and less people are going to be, um, out of the fields over time, right? That's the expectation. Uh, not everybody needs to be growing crops. A lot of people need to be doing trades in the city. Uh, and you also probably have a lot of sojourners and foreigners in the city, uh, as compared to out in the pasture land. So, uh, so it's just a different lifestyle <laughs> than the city, you know, that makes it a little less necessary. This doesn't need to be kept in the family as much. The family, of course, if you belong to a tribe of Israel, you have a familial connection to the land still through some relative because your clan is allotted some portion. So uh, if you're off living in the city, you still have folks back home <laughs> to, to, you know, in some sense, even if you don't know them super well your family still has land to, to plow and such. So, right. um,
0: And in addition to kind of this, you know, maybe ambiguity that, that gets talked about of like, you know, what do you do with like walled cities? There's this, you know, other ambiguity that then the discussion of the walled cities brings up. And that is specifically the Levites. And, you know, what about their houses that they own in walled cities? Um, Now, some important context for this that people may not know if they haven't, you know, read the Pentateuch recently. Part of the way that um, like land got allotted uh, to people is the Levites were not given like vast tracts of land the way that the rest of the uh, uh, tribes of Israel were. Um, Instead, they were actually given uh, a subset of cities that they were allowed to live in. Um, And maybe we didn't really have time to get into why that was the case, but it is the reality of the situation that the Levites did not have land the way that other people had land. So we get this, you know, basically they would potentially miss out on this uh, right that the Jubilee gives to them of being able to redeem their property. If, if the only property that we have is walled cities, then, you know, what happens to us, basically? And so the teaching is, oh, okay, well, in the special case of the Levites, we got to treat their walled cities the same way that we treat the land of the other tribes. Uh, you know, again, just to sort of make sure the whole system works.
1: Yep, for sure. <clears throat> so that covers these special cases. Let's hit at rule number four. Uh, the Jubilee covers specific types of property. Not all property by default, or by um or we might say by principle. So let's come in on Jubilee rule number four. Uh, the Jubilee covers specific types of property not all property. And that's important to understand. It's not um, that there is by default uh, or by principle that all property needs to go back to the original owner. Uh, The Jubilee is about a specific kind of land uh, and uh, for a specific purpose it returns to uh, the original owner, not all property. So uh, that's a good rule to be aware of. And then misconception number four relating to that um, I'm going to jump in the mind of someone who <laughs> might be arguing against us here. They might say, okay, fine. You know, the Jubilee isn't about all kinds of debt, but, uh, you know, still mortgages are the most significant kind of debt there is. That's a lot of debt, you know, and we should just, you know, cancel housing debt, you know, right here in the 21st century. Uh, after all, right, you know, it's, uh, it's about property. Mm. Uh, but of course, you know, literally nobody who's arguing for this lives on farmland (laughs) or (laughs) or or in something that could even reasonably be called like a village in this sense you know um like just like a village i mean it's hard because this concept of a walled city we don't have that anymore we don't need walls in the traditional sense um to protect us and you know i don't don't want to get any emails about about Donald Trump or whatever from that, but well, <laughs> because so, because one of the things I would add is there
0: the the notion of a walled city is it's it's kind of a pain to increase the size of a walled city. Like it, I, I mean, you can do it, you can like move walls out and things like that, but the the wall does kind of put a a soft cap on how big the city can actually be. Um, you know, in some sort of like reasonable growth. And so th- there, there is kind of a natural constraint on that that we don't really have in the present day. Like a lot of cities can kind of just keep getting bigger and the sprawl can just like keep going out. And so in my head, I almost, you know, want to say that probably part of the reason why the walled cities are excluded is because there isn't the opportunity for the walled cities to like basically take over all the land or, you know, uh, like subsume the, you know, total economy of Israel or something like that. Yeah, for sure. It's a bit speculative, but yeah. that's my that's my I, intuition.
1: No, I think that's a good point. And there's a whole history of the development of like walls as defensive options. And in the story of Joshua, uh, you know, the, with Rahab, she lives in like in the wall. Like her home is on the perimeter of uh, Jericho. So there, right. this is there's a whole historical like. Um, history of warfare and of um, conquer conquerors and stuff which obviously again a little more than we can get into tonight uh, in this episode (laughs) but but, yeah the point is that it's different Um, and what we have today is kind of different you have you know walls that are going to separate nations typically of some sort you have borders Um, but uh, we don't really have walled cities (laughs) anymore so And cities are way huger, as you pointed out. Yes. Um, So, yeah. And the point of the Jubilee is not, it's not, again, just to prevent oppression of the poor. But even more importantly, it's to establish enduring familial ties to the land. Because that was God's intention as the ultimate owner of it. Like, he's trying to keep social cohesion here. He doesn't want one clan to overtake another by buying up all the property. This is not Blackrock. For those aware of what's going on in the housing market now, uh, you'll get the joke. Um, (laughs) But uh, we just lack that context. Geographically, we don't live in Israel, but also, like, we're not pre Christ as well. You know, uh, we have a different relationship to God when it comes to place and time. We don't need to reside in the land of Israel, you know, in the way that uh, Israelites did. Right. Cool. Okay. So uh, pick up from there. Verse 35.
0: Verse 35, if your brother becomes poor and cannot maintain himself with you, you shall support him as as though he were a stranger and a sojourner, and he shall live with you. Take no interest from him or profit, but fear your God, that your brother may live beside you. You shall not lend him your money at interest, nor give him your food for profit. I am the Lord, your God who brought you out of the land of Israel to give you the land of Canaan and to be your God
1: brought you out of the land of Egypt.
0: Oh, did I, what did I say? Israel, <laughs> Israel, <laughs> out the of land of Egypt this is a great, I'm, I'm amazed. I've made it. I've been able to do such a great job reading so far. Um, I'll pick up in verse 39 here. Uh, if your brother becomes poor beside you and sells himself to you, you shall not make him "...serve as a slave. He shall be with you as a hired worker and as a sojourner. He shall serve with you until the year of the Jubilee. Then he shall go out from you, and he and his children with him, and go back to his own clan, and return to the possession of his fathers. For they are my servants, whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. They shall not be sold as slaves." You shall not rule over him ruthlessly, but shall fear your God. as for your male and female slaves whom you have or whom you may have, you may buy male and female slaves from among the nations that are around you. You may also buy from among the strangers who sojourn with you and their clans that are with you uh, who have been born in your land that they may be your property. You may bequeath them to your sons after you uh, Uh, after you to inherit as possession as a possession forever you may make them slaves Uh, you may make slaves of them Uh, but over your brothers the people of israel you shall not rule one over another ruthlessly
1: all right so switch topics Uh, now we're talking about slaves all of a sudden and Mm -hmm. uh, no longer about land so this first section verses 35 through 38 that you read Uh, Is about making loans to impoverished Israelites. And those loans are prohibited from charging interest. So uh, this correlates to other things in the law. Deuteronomy 23, 19 and 20 says, You you may charge a foreigner interest, but not a fellow Israelite. Um, And I think this is why the text is structured the way it is. When it says, Support him as though he were a stranger and a sojourner. And then it says, take no interest from him or profit. It's trying to say like support him this way, but also you can't take interest from him or profit because you can definitely take profit from a foreigner or a sojourner. (laughs) That's a consistent (laughs) feature of the law um, in this passage that you just read and elsewhere as well. So now uh, so we've been talking about debt and we've been talking about um, just this concept of like this taking care of the poor thing. And we've been Dunking on progressives a lot for their uh, their economic standpoints, but uh, the Bible is very clear um, that how do I put this? Uh, predatory lending practices, <laughs> um, which in and of themselves sound bad because of the word "predatory," but basically any attempt to extract money from the poor and desperate with a loan is pretty universally scripturally condemned. Um, so like, I don't know there's lots of different practices that lenders will use to do this. Things like, you know, uh, payday advance loans, right? So people who don't have any savings and, and are not spending wisely, right? Um, might get a loan to in advance of their payday. And of course it's exorbitant interest and exorbitant uh, uh, rates and stuff. So I think even though even though I might say such things shouldn't be illegal um there there's my libertarianism peeking out again. I certainly think they're sinful mm-hmm. uh, yeah they're
0: deeply evil i, I think we can <laughs> yes. we can say that
1: <laughs> yeah, um probably not uh, extremely uh controversial of an opinion. True, but, uh, and and but... the prophets
0: have some pretty fiery words, of uh, you know, about God's particular wrath against people for abusing the poor.
1: Yes, so if if uh, any progressives listening are. Are upset and i mean that in the economic sense you know if if you're socially conservative but you have some progressive economics uh welcome to the john 315 podcast you're welcome here uh this is a bad episode for you i'm sorry (laughs) but uh, but we um, love
0: you just the way you are
1: (laughs) but like that is not to say that uh that the whole concept of caring about what happens to the poor um, is at all like a necessarily a progressive idea or something that only progressives care about. Certainly um, the scriptures condemn it universally. And so should we. So, mm-hmm. uh, okay. So there's that. And then we have this section about, you know, if he's, he's so impoverished, you know, he he becomes a slave and he sells himself into slavery Uh and it's interesting, it says, you know, you, you shall not make him serve as a slave, he shall be with you as a hired worker and a sojourner. So he's not a slave, but he's kind of like an indentured servant, perhaps we could say. Uh, he's uh, essentially taken on as a worker. Um, it's, it's, you know, even though it says you shall not make him serve as a slave, it's kind of it's kind of a slave, <laughs> uh, is, what it, is what it sounds like to me. Um, but it, but it's it's more of like an, an enforced employment, <laughs> but and, and but part of it is it, the burden is on the employer, right? Uh, he's kind of required to do it, um, so he sells himself and becomes uh, a hired hand, basically. Um, but it's a little, he has a little less control over the relationship than would just someone who signs an employment contract. That's basically what it is here. Uh, but in the year of the jubilee, he goes back. He's uh, released from his, um, his servanthood. So uh, he's released in the Jubilee. Every Israelite is already a servant of a higher master. Why? Uh, because the Lord delivered them from Egypt, where they were actual slaves, not just hired hands. So because uh, Israelites were slaves and were redeemed by the Lord, everyone in Israel is technically the Lord's slave, the Lord's servant. Um, And because of that, the Lord doesn't want Israelites uh, enslaving other Israelites, which is interesting. So,
0: right. And it continues the same motif of, you know, like, why is it that you're leasing land and not selling it? It's like, well, it's because it's actually God's land. And, you know, it's like, why are you, you know, hiring these people and not like enslaving them? It's like, well, because they're already God's slave, you know? And, And so it's this sort of repeating pattern of, it's like when God actually owns it, (laughs) <laughs> you know you you don't get to sell it or you know treat it like it's yours
1: right except temporarily as mm-hmm. the need you know pragmatic needs arise so there's also this echo uh further of the experience of egypt when it says you shall not rule over him ruthlessly but you shall fear your god you know mm-hmm. it reminds me of the egyptian who was abusing um the israelite that that drove Moses to kill the Egyptian, you know, basically God is saying, don't do what would have made Moses kill you. (laughs) (laughs) Or or since Moses is writing it, he's kind of like, you know, writing this like, yep, I remember a time when I had to, you know, let someone know what's up.
0: (laughs) (laughs) No, actually, that's a really, really good observation, Jeremy. I hadn't, I hadn't like connected that before, but yeah, that, that is, that is poignant from like Moses's hand. Yeah. As the one who has, you know, been this Avenger, Ah, oh, that's that's very, very interesting.
1: Yep, for sure. Yeah. Uh, don't be slaves because you already were. That's an interesting, you know, we're not going back there, basically. Right. <laughs> um. So the master had to show some level of respect and provision of shelter and food. They weren't allowed to be cruel. Uh, they had to be a good employer, basically, you know. Uh, interestingly, there is this passage in uh, Exodus 21, uh, verses 2, 5, and 6, which says, um, when you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh he shall go out free for nothing. But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out free— And that's because his wife and his children would otherwise have stayed with the master. There's a whole, you know, law code about that. So if he wants to stay with his family and with his master, uh, then his master shall bring him to God and he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost. And his master shall bore his ear through with an awl and he shall be his slave forever. So the slave has the option in the seventh year to stick with the master. And this is a little tricky because we don't know how this compares to the year of the Jubilee, which seems to say everyone goes out, you know. Um, I don't know how to reconcile these passages. I just thought it was worth throwing that in the mix to make things more complicated. Well, yeah, no, Uh, (laughs) and it
0: is interesting because everyone because it's that uh, the the man who, you know, where the person who's been in, you know, the slave goes out, but he also takes his family with him is the like that. Like that's the teaching about the Jubilee. Where in this one it's the it's not the case that on the seventh year his you know wife and children would stay, and so yeah, it's it, it, yeah. interesting. It does seem to be kind of talking about something different. But yeah, you're right. I'm I'm not totally sure how those fit together.
1: I think the most sensible way to understand it is that uh, all slaves are indeed released and they go with their family. Mm-hmm. So, um, as with charging loans, the rule is different for foreigners. You can enslave foreigners under this law. And you can do it indefinitely. There ain't no jubilee, right? Um, so <laughs>
0: you can you can charge them interest. <laughs> you know you can enslave them. It's
1: yeah, yeah. How's that working out for you, uh, people who cite this passage for progressive worldviews? Uh, this is a very xenophobic passage. If we were going to judge it by the standards of like contemporary if we wanted to do discourse. the
0: anachronistic thing,
1: <laughs> yeah, like it's not actually. I mean, the Bible has more concern for foreigners than. Then, I mean, the Bible requires of the Israelites to have more concern for foreigners than any other nation that they would have had. Um, Right. Well, and and uh,
0: interestingly, many of the many of the times in the Old Testament when the Israelites are, you know, exhorted to treat the foreigner well, it's you know with the you know admonishment of like, "For remember, you were slaves in Egypt," and so the same like justification that's used here to not hold Hebrew slaves indefinitely that, you know, you were slaves in e- Egypt is the same kind of justification for why you should treat foreigners well. And so there actually kind of is a pretty deep connection that, that in here it's like, sure, the foreign slave doesn't get like, you know, released as part of the Jubilee, but that same teaching about... um You were slaves in Egypt, so don't be ruthless. Is in other places kind of applied to that same uh, to to your relationship with foreigners?
1: Yeah, for sure. Yep the the rule is not the same. You're supposed to treat your brothers better, but you're also supposed to treat others with respect. Yes. So, so let's uh let's do Jubilee Rule Five. And misconception five. So the rule number five, the Israelites were to show generosity to one another when they encountered poverty via interest-free loans and a variant of indentured servitude in dire circumstances. But uh, even the latter saw release in the Jubilee. It wasn't an indefinite servitude. Mm -hmm. Um, Misconception number five, the Jubilee tells us basically nothing about the form of slavery we're more familiar with. This passage cannot be cited to to talk about like slavery in the eighteen hundreds, like triangle trade, uh chattel slavery, um, which was wrong. Uh don't get me wrong, but this is the Again, wrong passage deeply to evil cite. And <laughs> and the and wrong and passage to cite to to talk about it. Um that's it's actually a pretty radical abuse of the text. I'm going to go further than that. um It's not just wrong. it's literally the opposite of what the passage says. um This passage explicitly allows the Israelites to own slaves from other nations now, if you're uncomfortable with that, okay <laughs> like, just is like great we'll, we'll, we can we can talk about that, but just saying that that's what the passage says so um. That doesn't make uh, again the triangle trade, chattel slavery, um, with the you know, uh, you know specifically race oriented, skin color oriented. It doesn't make any of that okay. Um, And there's plenty of other scriptures we could get into to talk about that. This we don't want to turn it into an episode on slavery too much. Um, Right,
0: but the point is that that if you're arguing against that, this is not the passage to use because it doesn't actually bolster that point.
1: Right. I would say this passage teaches that you can ethically and lawfully, um, if you were an Israelite, hold slaves from other nations because it explicitly allows it. But of course, subject to normal rules of ethics, you you couldn't be cruel, right? And a variety of other things. Um, Yeah. So contrary to the opinion of some, I don't, I don't think that, uh, I don't think that the Bible, at least when it comes to um, the old covenant, uh, prohibited all forms of slavery. So, um, and there's a reason why it, was, why it was a difficult issue for the church to figure out because you do have these passages, right? <laughs> um, so that's why there were talks about it for many years before kind of like an abolitionist position was popular. Mm-hmm. But uh, we'll leave it there and just say that's an abuse of this text. <laughs> so, uh, all right, let's uh, finish up the chapter. Go for it. All right, Uh,
0: so we'll say uh, start picking up in verse 47 here. So if a stranger or sojourner with you becomes rich and your brother beside him becomes poor and sells himself to the stranger or sojourner with you or to a member of the stranger's clan, then after he is sold, he may be redeemed. One of his brothers may redeem him, or his uncle or his cousin may redeem him, or a close relative from his clan may redeem him. Or if he becomes rich, he may redeem himself. He shall calculate with his buyer from the year when he, w- when he sold himself to him until the year of Jubilee, and the price of his sale shall vary with the number of years. The time he was with his owner shall be rated as the time of a hired worker if there are still many years left he should pay he shall pay proportionally for his redemption some of his sale price if there remain or if there remain but a few years until the year of jubilee he shall calculate and pay for his redemption in proportion to his years of service he, he shall treat him as a hired or as a hired worker year by year he shall not rule ruthlessly over him in your sight and if he is not redeemed by these means, then he and his children with him shall be released in the year of Jubilee. For it is to me that the people of Israel are servants. They are my servants whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God.
1: Yeah, and there's a good conclusion to the whole whole concept of Jubilee. I am the Lord your God. You are all mine. You're not each other's, at least not in an exploitative sense, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. um, you belong to each other, but not in that way. Um, and and uh, I own you because I'm your God and I made you and I redeemed you out of Egypt. So this section is easy to comment on because it's basically the slave version of, or the, the servant version of um, the earlier section with the kinsman redeemer, right? So the slave can redeem himself from slavery or a close relative can redeem him. And you have that same, like, calculation taking place. Um, so, you know, the slave is not the perpetual owner. I keep saying slave, that I should be more clear. The slave is uh, a better term to apply to the foreigners who are enslaved. This is a servant, a hired worker, um, indentured servant, whatever you want to call it. Um, and they're basically uh just like the land when it goes to a buyer in poverty, they're considered as their work. Like the value is their amount of work, just like with the the field, um, or the the piece of agrarian property, uh, the the value of that property is the crops and their value. You know, so I think that's all to say really there, because uh, it is analogous to what we already talked about. So we can end our our exposition at that point. Um, but I think we should now point out, uh, now that we've read the whole passage, like, what is this connection between land and servants? Those are the two elements of the Jubilee. They're the two things which are freed, uh, you know, freed in different ways, uh, f- you know, freed to rest or freed from slavery. Um, so what, what connects these two things? Um, I think two things, one is they both belong ultimately to the Lord only secondarily to the, uh, you know, supposed owner, uh, the landowner or the master. And then uh, B, uh, the, the second thing, both of them perform work on behalf of the owner. So <clears throat> the land works for you, you know, you sow in it and, uh, you know, they didn't understand the whole agricultural cycle necessarily back then. So they just, you know, the land does its magic. You put the crops in, you do the right thing and out comes food. Um, you know, and, um, and then the slave, you know, you, or the, the the servant, the, the worker, uh, he performs work for you, you know, so you have to also give him rest and release. Uh, so those two things connect those concepts. And um, this overriding point that we've, we've hit on a lot is um, both the land and the people who reside on it belong to the Lord, not to a landowner, um, not to a master. Uh, but ultimately to the Lord. So uh, let's lay down rule six and misconception six. And these are the last two. So rule six, um, this is a long paragraph here. So uh, listen to me.
0: It's a, it's a long rule.
1: Yeah. Long rule, long sentence, not a long paragraph, but uh So the Jubilee year includes a long series of specific regulations, 55 verses to be exact, uh, which pertain to limitations of land ownership in Israel and in the enslavement of fellow Israelites. And the point of which is to honor the Lord as the ultimate owner, to maintain family clan ties, and to show concern for the Israelite poor. Those three things are the point. And that's basically it. That's kind of basically (laughs) it. That's that's what the Jubilee is. We've just we've literally gone through the whole thing. We've talked about everything that this the Jubilee entails, like legally, right? And also the purpose behind it. So Misconception Six, as a corollary to the rule. It's all the things it's not about. <laughs> all the things it's not about. Thank you, John. Um a bunch of things which have literally nothing to do with the text. Um mm-hmm. so this is a a laundry list of things that aren't in the text (laughs) that are it's just Mm. non-related to the topic at hand um the first one (laughs) taking an entire year off from work (laughs) (laughs) literally not the concept of the of the jubilee at all you're only Mm. refraining from sowing your field you still have to harvest you still have cattle you still have plenty of other responsibilities um if you're a parent you got you know going to take care of your kids. Whatever Israelite diapers were like, you still yeah. got to handle that. <laughs> oh, um, oof. yeah.
0: So that we... sounds rough. I sorry. I just had this moment of like not having access to you know modern diaper technology. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Oh, that, oof. Yep. Okay. Sorry. Carry on.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so you know, in other words, the sabbatical here is for the land. It's it, it's not for the Israelite. That's not the topic here. The land is the topic even the redeemed slave which is kind of a subtopic to to be fair they're still going to have to get to work when they get released <laughs> like there's there's going to be stuff to do you know this isn't taking it's like, a whole in year in some off.
0: sense they're kind of out of a job
1: <laughs> right yes so the, this is not an excuse for laziness um we already have the sabbath day for that where you rest from your typical labors right so this isn't um and this is how we use the term now you go on sabbatical which means you you know uh, sometimes it means you're busy with another thing, to be fair. Some people will write a book on their sabbatical. Um, other people just, you know, travel the world and uh, indulge themselves. Nothing, there's nothing wrong with traveling the world. Don't get me wrong.
0: Uh, Which it's like, yeah, like vacations are good. <laughs> sure. It's, <yeah. laughs> it's just a little weird that we call them sabbaticals.
1: <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, and I think the concept of just not working for a year is deeply unbiblical. I think that would be considered sloth. <laughs> um. Even you if heard like it weird. here
0: first, folks, yeah, I don't know.
1: <laughs> and we already touched on this one. Here's another thing it's not about um the more recent form of slavery, right uh, the chattel slavery, and all that, so that's not the topic under discussion. Um, actually, it sort of more or less explicitly allows it, so uh, <laughs> um, third thing it's not about debt cancellation in any context other than agrarian or rural property. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like well
0: yeah because uh you know it like let's let's just like stretch the analogy a little bit and say you know let's just grant for a second that this does have something to say about debts it's like well i mean the argument is you should get rich and redeem yourself so you should pay your debt off like that's the <laughs> that's the right. first thing or and then rely second, on like, your family to support you yeah like get
1: like get your brother to pay your debt off like <laughs> it's <laughs> yeah for sure well and And like we said much earlier in the episode, the sabbatical year did have a release of debts. I don't know if that was literally every single kind of debt or what limitations were on that. Um, But it's important to point out that, that that was for fellow Israelites. You can still charge a loan with interest to a foreigner. Like That's not considered an intrinsically immoral thing to do in the Bible. There's like context reasons why god didn't want the israelites doing that to each other so if we wanted to apply this in any way today it would probably be don't charge your fellow believer on a loan interest Um, and i think there's plenty of possible wisdom to that to be fair and to be honest but the idea that societally we need to like implement some sort of debt cancellation and mass is insane and anyone trying to to argue that you just need to suck it up and like meet the obligations that you agreed to when you agreed to the loan. Okay. That's, that's, that is vice and sin and wickedness to fall back on, on your obligations and attempt to justify it with scripture, right? That's not the, the context of this at all. So anyways, um, have I gotten on my soapbox enough about that? It's, that's sloth and um, impatience and imprudence and all sorts of other things. It's not concern for the poor, Just it's just not. Plus the, most of the people saying this are like college graduates who are, you know, they have a degree, they have education. Um, I'm sorry if you didn't consider whether or not you'd be able to afford that education, but you're not like an impoverished person. Um, in in the sense that you're helpless, right? And you had no chance in life. was that soapboxy enough, John?
0: Yeah, no, I think think you're great, man.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Okay. I just hate the justification of of such things from this passage because they're missing the whole point of it. Um, All right. Fourth thing that the Jubilee is about. Whether or not agrarian living is superior to urban living. It has nothing to do with that there's no there's no discussion of that here
0: <laughs> there's there's a slight discussion of like well you, you got to treat some urban situations differently but <laughs> it recognizes that
1: they're different but it doesn't yeah. say which you should choose hmm or what's better um I think it does say that like you should know where your food comes from <laughs> I think we could reasonably like <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah there if, you go like Families maintain their land. Land is super important. The Lord gives crops and he allows them to grow and uh, faithfulness to the Lord brings about blessing. I mean, all of that's in the text for sure, but that doesn't mean You're
0: that... Valuing familial ties and, <laughs> you know, all that kind of thing.
1: Right. That's all there. But uh, but there's this sort of like weird um, agrarian idyllic <laughs> thing that sometimes crops up, I think, when people read the Jubilee chapter mm-hmm. and that's not here it's just talking about how to handle it like how to handle the property <laughs> it's no different than um any you know laws in the united states about how we handle i don't know like chicken coops or something <laughs> it's not it's not a commentary on the virtues of chicken coops it's just <laughs> it's, it's a just regulation given you know?
0: the fact that you have these chicken coop things <laughs> how should you deal with them <laughs> right yep
1: yeah um and, and like, uh, <laughs> you know
0: maybe finally and perhaps most importantly, the thing that the Jubilee is like totally not about is socialism. Like it just not, not, e- no, <laughs> not in the chapter, <laughs> you know, and, and this one is like, you know, more connected with one of the themes that we've, uh, you know, touched on a number of times in this, uh, you know, series on politics is that it's just like super anachronistic for us to try to read our modern political theories back into scripture it's like you know libertarianism is not a thing that like scripture teaches capitalism is not a thing that scripture teaches socialism is not like a thing that scripture teaches you know the you know these are like modern political theories that we have and and sure you you might be able to you can pull principles out of scripture that may have something to say about your political theory but it's like but the Bible isn't like teaching you about, you know, like this is the way you should structure your government or this is the way that you should handle economics in some kind of, I I don't know, like instruction
1: manual kind of way. And uh, OK,
0: sorry, I'll get off my soapbox now. But
1: <laughs> Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, these are laws that are intended to help the poor, right? They, mm-hmm. they are. A, you could call them a social safety net. Let's let's call it that. Right. Um, but. <laughs> but unlike unlike modern um western democracy social safety nets uh it actually is like a social safety net it's not just like um continual uh continual subsidization of not working right? um they prevent the impoverished from falling into starvation and destitution and they also prevent families from losing property and certain parts of certain um uh, you know, clans and segments of Israelite society from being able to lord it over the rest, right? Um anyone who's actually spent five minutes reading the chapter would not walk away with the idea of like state-enforced equality, which is what socialism is, basically. But the impoverished Israelites still kind of get screwed <laughs> in many ways, okay? Like it's not that they're um it's it's not that their life is going to be easy, it's that they're hopefully not gonna starve, right?
0: Yeah, it's like you know they're still spending thirty five years in indentured servitude. I mean, yeah, I, I'm not I'm not sure that's like you know victory,
1: right? Yeah, they're spending thirty five years in indentured servitude, not like thirty five years in their own home, um, you know? Like, <laughs> like yeah,
0: like amassing an inheritance that they can pass to their great grandchildren.
1: Right, and, and or or in the other hand, like taking handouts from the government while not working, even though they're able-bodied and able to work, which happens like so much in Western democracies. But that's not this situation at all. Um, even the hardworking Israelite who falls on hard times would be helped by the Jubilee laws for sure, but it would be helping them from the brink of starvation and destitution. And this is in a very different society, of course, where the Lord doesn't send you know uh rains you're done you're just you you're dead right um so it's also yeah, just a different yeah, world. the crops
0: don't grow you starve like yeah.
1: that's and i mean the same is true today but it would take a lot longer <laughs> right so um if somehow the food went away you know uh and there's just this pervasive tone throughout the text of of the responsibility being on the israelite you have to help yourself, and you have to so you know accept help from your family uh and that's kind of that's uh what you should be doing. everything else is a last resort, all of these laws that are um more intended to directly help the poor person so uh yeah, like you said uh, yeah that
0: that's that's a good way of putting it that it's that the jubilee is sort of the like if everything else in the society fails to take care of you then at the very least you know you get to go back to your land but yeah you're right it's like you know you should redeem yourself if you get you know if you get the funds to or a family member should redeem you if they're able to but if like none of those things happen then at the very least you go back to your land you know in the jubilee
1: yeah and it even goes beyond a step beyond just like they should do it it's considered like an obligation Sure. You know, whether it's.
0: Yeah. And I'm not being precise with my language necessarily, but.
1: Sure. I know what you said is correct, but I think it's important to highlight that, like, I I don't know to what degree it was enforced (laughs) um, (laughs) by a state, but I do know that this text makes it clear that this is like your obligation. Yeah. It's not like a social. It's not
0: just that, like, this is a good idea, but like, no, you should do this thing.
1: Right. Yeah um and i can pre- i can foresee an objection to what we've been talking about saying okay like yeah so it doesn't enforce equality among all individuals but but you know like the the land stays in your family um right so there is some sense of enforced equality here to which i would say i suppose but what we're talking about is more like enforcing equality among political identity groups various tribes and families and clans you know Um, i guess it's it's expecting a balance of power here in israel not that like everybody has the same thing so yeah i just think i I guess i would come
0: back with you know if your flavor of socialism is about promoting familial ties it's like okay i mean like yeah maybe let's talk about that one (laughs) i think i'm a little bit more open
1: (laughs) are you sure (laughs) I mean, so no, because that no, sounds but, a little bit like Nazism. <laughs> it's, oh gosh, no, that's not what I mean. Well, am I wrong?
0: Oh heavens, okay. Now that you say that, oh gosh, okay, yeah, I walk that one
1: back, I take it back. No, okay, I get what you're saying. I'm just trying to put you on the hot seat. No. <laughs> yeah uh, once once again we get we, we discover that that jeremy's
0: way better at roasting me than i am at him on this podcast
1: <laughs> no i get what you mean though like it...
0: <laughs> yes yes if if your if your brand of like trying to you know uh 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 it, like seek equality was for the purpose of like promoting healthy families and like you know societies based off of uh, uh, like the God instituted hierarchies, like namely that of the family, rather than trying to, you know, destroy God, you know, instituted hierarchies, like the family and, you know, split people up into these, you know, kind of like identical cookie cutter. This is like the, the, you know, this is the life that you, you know, cog of society get to function in, Like, like there's a difference between those two things. That's the point that I'm trying to make.
1: Certainly. Yeah. And I think moreover, you know, there's just like the family keeps the land, but, uh, but there's like a balance of power between entire like segments of Israelite society. And there's 12 tribes, right? There's the potential of warring tribes and, and there's potential of interwarfare within a tribe within the allotment of the land, which is given out to different segments of, of the tribe and, and different descendants of that, you know, there's a whole complex of it in, in um, Joshua and such, but uh, um, you know, this, it's, it's a kind of enforced equality that is much more about the balance of political powers than it is, um, than it is like uh, individualistic uh, equality. It's also worth pointing out here that like, not all the tribes got the same shake, you know, (laughs) (laughs) some people got way better deals than other people. (laughs) Like, like I've been to Israel. Okay. Which, you know, it's been a while, but geographically probably still pretty similar. Only been a few thousand years. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, there's just some places which are a lot nicer than other places. I'll leave it at that. (laughs) Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, some clans probably got terrible land. Uh, others got great land. If you're a Levite, you're in a whole different bucket, right? <laughs> you, so, you don't got no land. <laughs> yeah. Um, so even even then, like some property would have been worth a lot more when calculating the value of the crops. Um, which is a required part of the Jubilee law. So the idea of like full equality is just nowhere in the, the discussion here. It's talking about helping people from starvation and keeping familial land. That's, that's all. Yeah. You can, you could definitely say something about like, um, mega corporations and big banks if you wanted to i think you could probably find a way to tie jubilee laws into that but <laughs> it would take someone making a more complicated argument than i want to make here um you know there is there is this idea that you don't want certain entities to become too large um whether the government or uh, you know a non-government uh, agent right so um right i think you can get that out of this passage it's still a little bit of a you know reading something modern into it, but at least it's a little more on topic than just trying to enforce equality with socialism. <laughs> so that's, that's it. Okay. That's the passage. And we've talked about the misconceptions and, and all of that. Well, um,
0: it, it, it's, it is unfortunate that this is the end um, because it, it does mean, Jeremy, that you got so very close to giving us seven, jubilee rules but you only
1: gave us six <laughs> oh man well i mean we could just throw another one in there like, <laughs> we didn't we didn't make every detail a rule we kind of made them general so we could do like jubilee we we rule got... number seven it happens on the the seventh seven year. R- R- we didn't rule make that number a rule. seven
0: Rule number seven, maybe it's the 49th year, maybe it's the 50th year, maybe it's like halfway between the two of them. We're not totally sure, but that's the seventh rule of the Jubilee.
1: <laughs> Indeed. Well, we've been at it a while, but um, maybe for our other meat section, uh, we, can, we can go a little further on that idea that you touched on about mm-hmm. uh, there isn't like one political or economic theory that you can get out of the Bible. We touched on this already, I think in the first episode of this series, but I think it's worth touching more on now because we say that there isn't one correct political philosophy or one correct economic theory that you can like derive from the Bible. But I remember you saying, John, that there are definitely incorrect ones. Like there are (laughs) ones that are clearly excluded from script from, excluded from being true by scripture. Mm-hmm. Right, and we've definitely been hitting socialism that way. Socialism is excluded scripturally, if you ask me for like ten reasons, million reasons, I don't know seven reasons, seven sevens reasons, whatever you want um
0: seven times seven reasons,
1: <laughs> yeah, very clearly, I think can't is is irreconcilable with scripture, so um maybe let's talk about that a little bit <laughs> okay we we'll, well hit me with it, hit me with it, jeremy, sure, um. Scripture assumes that people have property rights. <laughs> <laughs> Scripture assumes that people own things and we're not the ultimate owner of anything. God owns mm-hmm. everything, but people can own things in a secondary way.
0: Right. And, and, and someone may come back to you and say, well, that's kind of the opposite of like what the Jubilee is saying. Cause the Jubilee is saying that, that people don't actually own the land in the way that uh, our modern notion of like property ownership functions. Except that I would respond to that and say, well, but it talks about like owning like property in the walled cities, kind of the way that we would think about owning property. So basically identical. Yeah. yeah Except yeah, for exactly. the whole
1: one year stipulation. But. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So there, there's kind of some strangeness about, you know, takesy backsies for, you know, a short period of time. But <laughs> yeah. Um, but it's like, yeah, even in here, they're like, no, no, they totally are property rights. Kind of the way that we would think about them. It's just that the land is kind of a special case. You know more than, you know, or maybe not a special case, because I wouldn't want to talk too much about, you know, you know how many of, uh, you know, like what kinds of different properties would there be, and you know how would we we think about them necessarily, but it, but at least that there's different kinds of property ownership talked about in the Bible, and some of it definitely does fall into what we would call property rights today.
1: Sure, yeah. And um And it's just
0: it's right there in the passage.
1: That's the point that I'm making. Yeah. Well and there's also this, you know, this concept of yeah, yeah, I would agree that it's not the same exact understanding of property rights as like a modern, um like Lockean homesteading view. <laughs> <You know? laughs> sure. Um, like uh it's not the same theory but it's sure as heck not not the government owning land. The government is not doing property taxes in in the land of Israel. <laughs> yes. Like people actually do own their land. Families and clans own land, people own land. Um and no one can take it including the government. So we talked about Naboth's vineyard in the very first mm-hmm. um I think the very first episode we did on this as well. So this idea of Ahab and Jezebel conspiring to kill Naboth and take his land, which we didn't talk about it so much then, but it's his ancestral land, right? So this is actually very related to the topic of the Jubilee. Mm-hmm. Um, he, It's his land, rightly, the Lord gave it to him, and, and it belongs to him in perpetuity. It's not to be sold, and it's sure as heck not to be taken by the government, Um and so or the crops that, that grow from it you know mm-hmm. so yeah so, so I don't know I, I in my opinion um, although it certainly focuses a lot on family ownership and clans and, and such as we've said like 500 million times during this podcast uh, the government sure doesn't get to just redistribute it um, uh, so unless you're Joshua and you're going to Conquer a brand new land and divide it, <laughs> you know, yeah. how you see fit. I mean, <laughs> like, it's kind of like a special case. It's just not the same thing at all. Um, uh, just scripture assumes that people own things. That's the point. Thou shalt mm-hmm. not steal assumes there that you can't take the things that are your neighbors. Right. Um, right. The the laws concerning uh, when Moses predicts the king that the Israelites will eventually uh ask for uh, even though it's uh, bad for them to do so they'll eventually ask for a king and moses talks about like he's gonna take your stuff you know that right yes. <laughs> he's, gonna, he's gonna conscript you without your consent he's going to take your stuff and exact far more than is fair um that's kind of the idea like that's a bad thing you shouldn't want that mm-hmm. um so yeah um redistri- redistribution of wealth uh to enforce equality, I would say is generally bad, whether it's a state thing or a non-state thing. I also don't agree with like socialist cult type stuff, um, which is non-government, but I, I still think, uh, incorrect and uh don't come at me with acts two maybe we'll have to do a- <laughs> we'll have to do an acts two episode someday maybe um,
0: maybe we should have done this episode on the acts two thing
1: but <laughs> well, okay so so the brief the brief little reason why that's a terrible interpretation of acts two is like okay, okay yes <laughs> what are you are you starting a new religion or something because that was literally the start of a new religion and people were in jerusalem for the festival, and they had to stay and be instructed by the newly appointed apostles of a brand new sect of Judaism. <laughs> and so because of that, they sold property and made sure everybody um, was able to have enough to to live on while they were there in Jerusalem. Anyways. There you go. <laughs> uh, like, it's not intended to be a, literally all believers should pool their resources at all times. That's not what, Anyways.
0: Uh, (laughs) there you go slam dunk
1: (laughs) (laughs) so i don't agree with the state socialism and i don't agree with like a smaller scale like utopian attempt at it um -hmm. and it's no mistake that that's often associated with cults (laughs) and and new religious movements right um not calling christianity a cult but (laughs) (laughs) but you know it it was a new religious movement that's fair Mm -hmm. to say um So yeah, that's my little spiel on scripture assumes personal property rights and therefore whatever our take on the government's role in, um, in, you know, enacting laws for the poor or whatever, uh, this idea that like we should just redistribute wealth or allow people to, you know, not pay their loans that they agreed on. Um, uh, just uh, all of those encourage mass financial irresponsibility, um, and all of them are not scriptural in the in the least um right and we can also add to that all sorts of you know government asset seizure um for one reason or another there's lots of reasons why the government can do that eminent domain that taxation goes... <laughs> well property tax <laughs> property taxes absolutely yeah property taxes are absolutely a violation and, of
0: yeah and i would say i'd say uh naboth's vineyard um i i i'm sort of i i'm toying with the idea that i think that's the most clear denunciation of property tax that that we'd get uh you know in scripture uh because it's because you're right because it's like property taxes you know fundamentally it's the state saying you know actually we own this you know and so we can we can lease this property to you you know the person who holds the title to it like that you know that's what a property tax is um And it's like, and that, that's like literally like the thing with Naboth's vineyard is, uh, uh, you know, a, you know, uh, Jezebel's like, Oh no, just take it. Like you can like the land, the land's yours to, 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 to pluck and to take and to do whatever you want with it. And yeah. Anyway. So there's my, there's my little spiel about Naboth's vineyard being a critique of, uh, uh, (laughs) property tax, but
1: yeah, no, I agree. And certainly also civil asset forfeiture, um, Mm uh, because first, Ahab tries to buy the land from Naboth, if I'm not mistaken. Um, Uh, Yes, yeah, yeah. And then he refuses, and (laughs) that's the. (laughs) Naboth's (laughs) like, no, dog, I like my crib. Uh, (laughs) I don't really care that you're the king. You know that you can't just take my land. That's against the law. And then the king is like, you know. (laughs) I am the senate, right?
0: <laughs> well, no, it's great because Ahab's like,
1: yeah, you're right. I guess I'll go home. <laughs> yeah, then Jezebel persuades him to do it. Yeah, but that's yeah. it. Speaks to it speaks to the way that the Lord understood His land and how it ought to be given. Because Jezebel, the whole her whole function in the story is that she's a foreign wife that the king took to himself, and this foreign woman encourages the king to adopt the practices of the other nations, which Jezebel belonged to. Right. Mm-hmm. And so is a very clear idea of like non, non Israelite ideas impacting the king and, uh, and destroying this concept of property rights and familial ownership and ties to the land, which uh, which God was so insistent on when they conquered the land. Yeah. And even before it, when Moses uh, did his thing. Mm-hmm. Um
0: and another yeah. another well,
1: problem with I, oh, socialism is is you know a lot of those laws concerning the poor aren't state enforced, right? Um, right. So some some I would say probably were like the Jubilee laws were probably to some extent uh, enforced by some sort of authority, right? Because there's financial transactions and stuff like there has to be some means of of. Uh, yeah, there has to be some means of enforcing that, but but certainly like there's laws about how you should be generous to the poor, and they're not associated with a penalty uh, if you don't, other than the Lord personally judging you. But there's not like someone's yeah. not going to come with a sword and mow you down, right?
0: Yeah, yeah. Like the uh, um, the the example for this that I always use is uh, um, with the gleaning laws. You know that it's you know one one of the. Um, requirements in the uh, uh, Old Testament law is that you don't harvest your field all the way to the edges, but you leave like a five foot barrier um, around uh, the, the edge of your field so that people who are walking by or, you know, specifically the poor can come and glean, like, you know, pick some of the harvest from the edge of your field. Um, this is kind of like one of the ways that the poor are taken care of, um, uh, you know, in the nation, you know, nation of Israel. Um, but it's like, but if you look at it, there's no, like, you know, there's no penalty. It's not like, you know, or, you know, you're, you know, this will be required of you or something like that. Um, so it's like, so you're commanded to do it, but it, you know, again, it's not like the, you know, the Levite is going to be coming down to check the, the length of your, your gleaning patch or something like that. Oh, you only left three feet of your gleaning patch. It's going to be a $500 fine this year. Again, you know. Or like, like there's nothing like that. There's no overweening bureaucratic nanny state. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it's like utterly foreign uh, to like, like, I think it's comical, even the way that I'm describing it, that something like that would happen, you know? And, and and so that, that there, there are stipulations for how the poor are taken care of, but you know, the way that I read it is you're right. The judgment is like, like God's going to hold you accountable for your hard heart to the poor if you do glean all the way to the edge of your field, like that kind of, of greed is something that God's going to hold you accountable for, you know, not that you're going to be fined by a nanny state.
1: Yeah. And, and hopefully your family also holds you accountable to it, right? The people who you love and who are close to you. Um, and in addition, you're right. You're right. Because that's because the, the gleanings
0: like, that's very public everybody sees that you're not observing the gleaning law when you harvest to the edge of your field
1: and you should feel ashamed. Yeah. Social shame is not a bad thing. Contrary to Nathaniel Hawthorne, Uh, (laughs) (laughs) man, we're dunking on everybody today. (laughs) Uh Anyways. um, So, yeah. So, uh, and it's important to point out that lots of the laws in the Torah do have like very specific stipulations attached to what will happen to you or what yeah. should happen to you. If you do that, like if you murder somebody. something, yeah. some then, things
0: are state enforced,
1: <laughs> then you're going to have a, the death penalty. Right. So, so the fact that the law doesn't say, or the state inspector will come find you a $500 gleaning fee, um, that, you know, that, that is significant. And of course it also ties into the whole concept of, uh, when we talk about the law of Moses, like the word "law," Torah doesn't mean like a regulation. It's not the same way we use the word "law" today. It it's includes... not like city ordinance, right? That's, no, like, that's not the at wrong all. way of thinking about it. It it's it's a it actually means like doctrine or instruction. Is kind of like a good interpretation of the meaning of Torah. Um, it like it gets translated as law, but it, it includes things that are also just like ethics that yeah. don't have any state weight behind them. Um, and so we need to keep that in mind when we read the law of Moses, that uh, it is a law. It's a law. I don't want to say spiritual law because that makes it sound like Bill Bright at the Campus Crusade, but, but, um, but it is a spiritual law. Like a lot of it is not enforced by anything other than one's own conscience in obedience to it. Right. Mm-hmm. And the social environment that is created by it. Right. So, man, uh, this was a long episode. <laughs> we went oh, 55 but it was verses. So good. Yeah. Yeah.
0: <laughs> no, it, Jeremy, I really, really enjoyed this episode. I, uh, um, uh, it, I, I, I really like these ones where we kind of like take a huge chunk of scripture and just work through it. Um, I, 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 this is definitely where I have the most fun of kind of getting to go back and forth with you on this. So thank you.
1: Yeah, I, I agree. We should do some shorter ones once we're done with this series. <laughs> yeah, some that are less than two hours. <laughs> yeah, yeah, less than fifty-five verses. There's a we have a long list of simpler ones to tackle. You know, I feel like the early days, all we did on this podcast was like. Well, this is a dumb interpretation because if you read the next verse, it contradicts the interpretation. It's, <laughs> it's like the yeah. way, we're talking about like numerology and the scriptures, <laughs> <laughs> like, like the, the economy of ancient Israel and the development of walled city warfare. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's really, we've come a long way on this podcast, but um, I would appreciate some simpler ones going forward. Yes. I'm sure our audience would probably appreciate the change of pace too. So, Yeah.
0: well, Well, audience, please bear with us. We have one more monster episode talking about the kingdom of god coming to you well probably not next week but sometime soon uh so be watching that uh rss feed or youtube if you're following us on video so thank you uh everyone who stayed with us this long um if you uh have any ideas for short podcast episodes that you want you can uh you can send them to us says because we uh we thank you for joining us if anything you heard today has sent you into a blind theological rage or political rage feel free to lambast us on social media alternatively if you liked what you heard have bible verses you want us to break down or questions you think we can answer you can send them to the john 315 podcast at gmail.com that's the john 315 podcast at gmail.com thank you for watching